Incoming. 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 Prepare yourself for Rumors of War 1987. Hello, all my love birds out there in Dreamland. This is Rumors of War 1987. Here to discuss the topic of disease, and more importantly, the topic of viruses, viroids, and a greater extent, virology itself. There are many things I don't tell you about virology. There are many things I don't tell you about viruses and their vectors outside the human body known as viroids. For the last 30 to 40 years, there has been a strong academic current to discuss and investigate the truth behind viruses in outer space, viruses origins from outer space, and the transmission between planets in the solar system of bacteria and viruses. Viruses typically attach themselves and predate bacteria so that where you find bacteria, you find viruses. And in 1979, the first literature was published suggesting that viruses were communicable between planetary bodies. Later research would go on to demonstrate that not only were viruses and bacteria present in outer space in high atmosphere conditions, but that they were present in exceedingly large numbers, and the likelihood of their transmission was not only possible, but actually very likely the main source for life on Earth. This, trans this panspermia, the transmission of bacteria via planetary bodies and via uh, orbiting bodies such as meteorites, meteoroids, comets, etc. Then you start breaking down how many meteor showers there have been. Lately, there's been an uprise in the number of meteor showers, large meteoroids uh, traveling close to the Earth, large comets traveling close to the Earth, and the resulting residue as it rains down. It has been calculated and estimated that trillions and trillions of viruses rain down on the Earth in the form of cosmic dust every single day. And to put that into perspective, an experiment was performed in the mountains of Spain, and two or three test buckets were placed at a mountaintop, and they collected over 800 million individual virus specimens in a square meter of land. So for every square meter of land, there are 800 million viruses raining down every day, at all times of the day, 24 hours, seven days a week. Now, I know what you're thinking that most of these viruses we're naturally immune to, that they have no harmful effects on us, and that they are typically redundancies, such as, I don't know, lesser viruses, lesser intense viruses, viruses which you can call almost benign. But really, it only takes one particularly virulent and infectious strain to spread across the world when you deal with the topics of the ocean currents, topics of melting glaciers, the topics of the weather, such as the Gulf Breeze, and the subjects such as human and animal migrations and travel. The Gulf Breeze circulates around the world, the trade winds circulate around the world, the Gulf Stream circulates water around the world, going from the polar to the tropic regions and back again in a gigantic cycle. And not only that, but meteorites fall on all corners of the earth every day. Space debris is also a likely candidate for transfusion because recently 
there has been found bacteria and the, and the concurrent viruses found in bacteria growing on the exterior of the ISS, a surface that was sterilized and subject to high orbit conditions, and it was acting like a petri dish in the solar radiation. In fact, the bacteria and the viruses which have been sent up to be researched on by space programs have found that the bacteria assume more efficient and radically stronger shapes and designs in space and their powers of transmission and powers of infection are, in, are increased tenfold, a hundredfold, sometimes a thousandfold. So viruses making the travel, making the commute between planetary bodies across the solar system have the prime opportunity to thrive and become stronger, better, faster versions of themselves. There is a project in Antarctica collecting quantum uh, particles in the ice, the kilometers of ice, because they know that over a time these, these particulates rain down and are trapped in the ice. So the odds increase when considering the Antarctic ice as being a giant collector of these viruses that are coming down from space, both caps, and the increasing ice melts offer greater opportunities for these viruses to be released. Viruses thrive in marine environments. A very little known fact is that viruses thrive on the bottom of the ocean. Viruses thrive in the deepest substrate and muck of the of deep, deep oceans. And mankind has no resistance to these viruses because we have no contact with them. But these can be released in methane bubbles to the surface, coming from biomes that mankind has is completely kept away from due to distance and uh, extreme conditions, to the surface where mankind can catch them. And the fish we eat, the commercial fishing, the, the leisure swimming, the recreational swimming and travel of the oceans, as well as they can be released into the air into the Gulf Stream, speculated that a virus originating off the coast of Africa could travel to the North American shores in a matter of days, just as a hurricane travels from North Africa to the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. These viruses would have structures and functions that we wouldn't be very aware of, where, uh, you know, we wouldn't have pre-planned conditions to, to deal with them, to vaccinate against them, and they could easily wreak havoc on our population. I know it is kind of the topic du jour to talk about the virus problem which we're dealing with now, the self-isolation and quarantining, but this is a real issue, not just a hyped up issue, not just a mainstream media uh, bonanza, or that viruses were from space and from these extreme environments were considered the most prevalent danger to mankind, second only possibly to the nuclear war. Uh, presented in the Cold War scenario of the last century. In fact, in Russia, in the taiga, in the Siberian regions, due to ice melt, due to the permafrost melting, uh, due to abnormal heats, they experienced an outbreak of anthrax, which had been frozen, presumably for at least 70 years, maybe more, in the corpse of a caribou, and it infected a live, uh, living herd of caribou, killing one 12-year-old boy and hospitalizing two dozen others. Do you know that when we start, first started sending people into orbit, when we started sending people to the moon, they were quarantined for two weeks 
and observed heavily and tested rigorously to make sure that they did not bring back an infection or a communication of some disease, some virus, some bacteria, because we knew that as a possibility in the 60s and the 70s. In fact, in the 70s and 80s, the idea had seeped into pop culture so much that it was that soft disclosure was taking place, uh, particularly in the films Andromeda Strain, particularly in the films uh, Night of the Living Dead, and many others, that satellites sent to faraway destinations in our solar system could bring back mutated viruses, which the human body had no immunity to, which the which would run rampant like a wildfire through our towns and communities and cities and potentially sterilize the world and cause human extinction, cause mankind's extinction. This was a palpable fear. This is a fear that saw the creation and formulation of many government entities, federal agencies that could react and could sequester infected individuals in a state of constant war against pathogens and a constant war against infection. Now, I'm not saying that we could be seeing real-life zombie apocalypses, but rabies is a virus. Mad cow disease is a virus. Both those have similar conditions towards the zombie virus. And I believe zombies themselves are a metaphor for mankind's fear of mortality when it comes to decay, when it comes to infection from pathogens, when it comes to infection of others due to close proximity in human nature. I just wanted to make you guys research and look into the possibility that this virus infection, this hysteria that is gripping the world may not be what they say it is, but could be why they say it is to protect against the virus, to protect against pandemic. That the CDC has no real reason to tell you the truth, but it was created for a specific purpose, and that is to proactively destroy the infected, the infection rate, and to mitigate the wholesale destruction and death of community when it comes to pathogens, when it comes to virology or bioweaponry. And if viruses are raining from the sky, it doesn't matter the technological level of a nation. It does not matter the sophistication of the response. Because there are no defenses against the creeping death of infection, of plague. We are all mortal and all doomed to die. This has been Rumors of War 1987. Thank you for giving me a listen and taking the ride with me. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Please like and subscribe if you haven't already. And consider donating. You can find my links to Patreon and PayPal. Incoming. 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 Prepare yourself for Rumors of War 1987. Hello to all those out there in dreamland tuning in. This is Rumors of War 1987. In this installment of Know the Enemy, I'm going to be discussing the phantasmal space vampires which exist in our solar system, but whose origins has been theorized to be far exceeding the boundaries that we have mapped around our sun. They are comprised mainly of an antimatter. They are composed mainly of a 
substance which does not reflect light or appear readily to our visible spectrum as human beings. They have a strong presence in the higher densities. They prey on human emotion and human thought, and they can suck the life force from somebody who is unfortunate enough to fall victim to their persuasion or be unfortunate enough to be in close proximity to the material forms. So first, let us pray. Our Lord, who art thou in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we are trespassers. And forgive us our debts as we are debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the power, the glory, and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. To understand these vampires, one has to understand life force. Life force is exhibited throughout every organic being, creature, or entity. It is produced by every single organism, but is amplified and sometimes completed by mating, by the union, or by the close contact and healthy community shared by many intelligent species. The humans, the mankind, um, being one of them, our life force is half male and then half female. So in union and matrimony of the bodies, we exhibit a full uh, spectrum of our life force. We are complete as a creature. It is called prana. It is called chi. It is called ki. It is called, by many names, the divine spark, the breath of life. And it is not intelligence, but it is consciousness. It is not the mind, but it is the soul. It is not the body, but it is the spirit. And it is um, what ultimately nourishes us. Man is not fed by bread and water alone, but by the word of God, but by the spiritual um, spiritual fuel of the universe that is readily available. What we know as the materium, as the 3D matrix, the carbon matrix, is but the physical manifestation in this density of the life force. Uh, in fact, what we know as the many densities, the many chakras uh, going up to nine, uh, sometimes up to 11, according to certain texts, is pri primarily the, do the domain of the life force and is only attainable by mastery of the life force. Vril is a form of the life force and it's a sexualized form of the life force concentrating on the root chakras, concentrating on the genital chakras, concentrating on the genitalia and the lusts and passions of an individual to harness. Uh, these vampires also operate on that level. They're vampires, but not in the way that they that's that they suck blood or they feed off blood. They exsanguinate their victims, but they feed off the life force, they feed off the vril. And they were encountered first by the Dark Fleet. They were encountered first by the Notwaffen, who um, purposely enhanced their will, purposely in become a channel their will to attain uh, intuition and precognition. But because they are vampiric to the will, they did not appear on their on their ability. They did not appear on their radar as you call it, in their scans. And so they were preyed upon and had to learn a very hard lesson with involving many casualties. There are many vampiric creatures, many creatures that have evolved to nourish themselves by exsanguinating, by leeching off of others. And it is a very um, highly evolved adaption strategy, a highly evolved feeding strategy. We believe that this creature is a organic creature, not created artificially, but one that evolved either in some area of deep space beyond the... The, the known limits of our solar system are somewhere in an antimatter type dimension, um, maybe a negative dimension, a null space. Physically, they were they are 
uh, in body er, incarnated into bodies that resemble very tall, very gaunt, very agile, uh, winged biped bipeds, giving them a very bat-like uh, humanoid uh, form. But this form is only one of their many appearances it is the true appearances their ultimate appearance but they can manifest themselves like an hallucination to look like the species they are preying upon thus they can pass around the physical realm amidst that species without any suspicion or and act like a uh, a, a predator inside the flock of sheep and wolf uh, wolf and sheep's clothing if you will any kind of concentration on this figure, any kind of meditation on this figure, or attempt to uh, reach this figure is met with uh, nausea, is met with dizziness, is met with delirium, and m their presence can drive many sensitive, many um, higher density beings, many psychic beings insane. Uh, their mere presence is enough to install terror. If they truly reveal their form, they can um, produce uh, post-traumatic shock, shell shock syndrome in those that witness it. Uh, this is a natural reaction in dealing with a predator of this kind of magnitude. Typically, though, they, they uh, regardless of their gender, uh, try to manipulate the creatures they are preying upon by appearing as female, as, uh, as, as desirable females, as some kind of uh, whatever that, that analog is to that species. They try to represent that yeah, physically. They try to uh, become this trans-proportional um, trans, uh, creature so that even though they may be I think roughly 10 feet tall and winged and bipedal. They appear as slender, they appear as feminine or um, desirable or weak and petite um, creatures, uh, in our case women, to lower the suspicions, to lower the defenses of their prey, to disarm their prey, and to evoke a lot of the lust and, um, and uh, real energy that they will then harness by exsanguinating their victim of their life force of sucking it out after enough um, it's energy is collected after enough victims are um, gathered and preyed upon and um, and eaten basically on, on their energy their, their life force they can manifest physical uh, powers they can they psychic powers that they can uh, use to control and manipulate physical reality around them warping it and creating uh, structures creating um, ultimately their own image of a world through the physical realm even easier than constructing it through manual labor or constructing it through slave labor. They simply think and then the matter around them shifts and um, rearranges itself to better suit whatever desire these uh, creatures uh, have. These creatures are not properly named, at least I never learned their name really. We call them the phantoms, we call them space vampires, we call them um, vampire. And that's what they are. It's a it's a good description of it. Um, they, I guess, as as when they appear as women, will engage in coitus or will engage in fornications with their victims, usually over a period of days, weeks, sometimes even months and years. And each time, um, digest a little bit more of their life force, take a little bit more of the life energy, and thus allow them to sustain themselves. They're not greedy. They are greedy, but they're not greedy enough just to completely drain individuals as they encounter them, because that would raise suspicion. To, to understand their nature, everything is is based on guile and seduction and um, and lust. So ultimately, even though the individuals being victimized might realize something is amiss, might realize that they are in danger, that ultimately they can't resist because they become addicted to the attention, they become addicted to the um, the high of being fed upon, the adrenaline, the uh, typically the taboo that's associated with these creatures and encounters and these creatures know that exploit that and emphasize that in their feeding habits they are extremely gruesome um 
given over to their level of manipulation and also their level of mastery of a creature's sexuality. They um, can operate in any culture. They can operate in any society. They can operate amongst any species. And they'll pick those species particular lusted after traits, lusted after actions and activities after a little while of study and um, and movement inside their communities, inside their society. Basically, they, they learn and research from on their prey and then embrace them uh, on their terms to, to, to deliver their real up to them, you know, to, to milk them, to basically farm them or ranch them, much like the Orion Draco, but the Orion Draco physically eat them, physically use uh, people as meat, and physically drink the blood. This is on a spiritual level, this is on a uh, psychic level, this is on a real level. They don't care if it's a man or a woman, uh, both they, they're equally able to do, um, both they are equally able to prey upon and manipulate and exploit. If encountered or tried to be destroyed, if attempted to be destroyed, if, um, you know, in engaged in hostile action that they will resort to physical violence they are extremely adept agile and powerful in um in combat but they don't have a lot of standard uh, what we would call technology they usually rely on psychic and uh, and uh physical attacks um involving their natural power their natural uh, agility and a natural um a form the winged bipedal tall gaunt form even though they're flesh has been described as as hard as steel and their their grip is as you know capable of killing uh, crushing a man a full-grown man's neck uh and skull uh, within its bare hands it does have clawed hands some have been captured over the course of uh, the decades that they have been discovered by the dark fleet these are traded uh very very profitable um specimens they are kept to research to um understand how they exploit the vril how they can uh you know, sustain themselves physically through this intangible energy, which is something that not even the Dark Fleets, uh, the Notwaffen's greatest of real priestesses can ultimately do. They have not achieved immortality. The Dark, the Notwaffen desire immortality, but the Space Vampires seem to have acquired the immortality. They seem to have already mastered this, um, this technique, this very desirable technique to those that practice in real magic. Even though they may not feed directly, they can still sustain themselves, such as by uh, the encounters with the the researchers or the scientists and the guards that are that are imprisoning them simply by proximity unless they were if you wanted to starve one the only way to do it would be to isolate it and then make sure no one encountered it or no one was in the proximity of it because the hungrier it gets the more powerful its siren call is it kind of emits this psychic uh, beacon and draws creatures towards it um it's very interesting in that regard um the ships that were originally found that were that origin that was uh, assumed that was suspected of being from outside our solar system were uh, solar sails they were gigantic um, ships that would later be called tomb ships uh, mausoleums uh, they were called tomb ships and they were basically mausoleums they were floating mausoleums because they didn't have any life signatures on them but uh, they and they were powered through these uh, solar sails which propelled them at great speeds but ultimately um, gave them the appearance of being derelict and being abandoned to the uh, forces of the cosmos, the solar winds, as you were. They were basically ghost ships. They were set adrift, uh, floating around the outer fringes. Um, ironically enough, uh, they were not empty, though. They were actually full of... Uh, these space vampires, these phanta, these phantoms, they were imprisoned in stasis and kept alive um, uh, through, the, through the machinery of these ships, through the design of these ships. 
so that they didn't have to resort to cannibalism, even though some of the ships they have found have had malfunctioning stasis systems. So the theory is that they are extremely old and that they were set on this course or set off on this strategy uh, upwards of millennia ago because the way that they were designed is very bio-organic, but at the same time very, um, very much resembling... Um, uh, the Dark Fleet's own ships, the Orion Draco-inspired ships, the design of those ships. So the Orion Draco are tight-lipped upon it, but um, they do recognize the technology used uh, sometime in the 1960s that they were discovered. Uh, just being seen, they were just tracked on radar. But in the 1970s, uh, in the definitely the 80s, they were encountered, uh, boarded, the ships were boarded, um, and the specimens were acquired. And they thought despite the specimens were lifeless, they thought they were, uh, they thought the whole ship was lifeless, but they quickly awoke, um, they quickly awoke ecosystems on board the ships through their presence, then their, their strength and the real, uh, provided ample food source just from being in the proximity of these, um, these dark matter type creatures that preyed upon Vril, that, that sustained themselves on Vril, and many of these creatures from the negative space, as you would guess, for lack of a better word, the, the negative space, these antimatter creatures, awoke, and... The Dark Fleet did not often started to understand what they were dealing with, started to understand that this was an actual um, discovered Xeno race, the alien race. Um, the creatures were found off the edge of Jupiter, floating around um, the moons of Jupiter, and they've also been found uh, alongside Mars, and they've found, been found in the Kyber belts. They've been found around Neptune, Saturn, um, Uranus, and Pluto. They have not been found in very many numbers, but several dozen have been found. The ships that have been found have sometimes been found on the surface of um, very sterilized, hostile moons and planets. They have, don't seem to be very um, susceptible to physical damage or, um, or they are very durable. They have a lot of strength in their material because they have been found impacted, crash-landed, and, um, you know, without any kind of... Um, Without any kind of uh, maintenance, you know, when I say derelict, they were really derelict, and they showed the age of, of almost a millennia of uh, neglect and um, the ravages of micro object particle hits, asteroid hits. Um, none have shown damage of being involved in a like, conflict, an armed conflict with any other spacefaring race, although um, through the Dark Fleet's contact. It, the questioning arises whether or not the Astro High Command or whether or not the Orion Draco uh, purposely leave these alone or didn't have any knowledge of them or um, just are unable to damage them or unable to destroy them. They, the ships have several designs. Uh, there is a, there's a uniformity in the design itself through the but there is there have been several of course varying vessels uh, discovered. Uh, we don't know if they're individually created if each one of these different various variations on the vessel type uh, you know indicate a tribal difference uh, the origin uh, a different origin maybe a different world maybe a different era if they are launching these ships to our solar system over the course of a millennia they could easily be several thousand years apart from design development and build each being um, each being very bio-organic in nature um, they're I said mausoleum ships, so they have a very gothic uh, nature to them, where they are like catacombs, they are like um, osseries, where they are honoring and at the same time designed by the the species itself, and it's recognition of the of their own um, their own physical natures, their own physical mortalities. A lot of um, a lot of the systems are run on vril, and it.
it is unclear whether or not the creatures put themselves in stasis due to lack of rill or put themselves in these ships and um, set the course to acquire the rill that they themselves were unable to acquire at their origin, at their point of origin. Human beings have that, that did um, explore or have been captured, uh, they do keep um, human beings on these ships if they can. They do work together, even though they do prefer to hunt uh, alone. They do seem to prefer to hunt and operate as individuals. They do have a community. They do have a society, a social structure, and they will cooperate, and they will um, sometimes work uh, a single victim and prey upon a single victim in tandem or as many as three to five uh, uh, these uh, creatures will pick a specific person who is very powerful in their real production very powerful in their life force and sustain themselves in turn until that life force is, is uh, devoured their true higher density form is uh, one of a multi-faced multi-winged cherubim seraphim type uh, construct but like the Elohim um that have been witnessed as such uh, creatures. We don't know if that's a, a tell of a um, specific planet's uh, origin. They could be from Nibiru. That has been a theory. Um, it is very hard to believe that a system that is based on light can produce such a dark and uh, predatory creature. And the, the, the Elohim from Nibiru, Nibiru have never been uh, witnessed preying upon or consuming any other life form uh, for sustenance. Whereas these creatures really have only ever been uh, witness consuming and preying upon their creatures. They do have a religion. They do have a god. Uh, their god. They're very monotheistic, apparently, upon questioning. And they, what little is known about their their faith and their mythology is reference to a galactic uh, in scale spider that uh, weaves uh, the futures and destinies of all life and connects them through a fiery web. And the supplication of these creatures is very maddening the survivors of capture from these ships uh, are completely driven insane and yeah, unrescuable un untreatable in that case having witnessed um, the savagery the barbarity of these creatures who have no respect for human life for human sanctity or the sanctity of any spirituality uh, it is what i have known as the closest to a physical hell to a closest of a materialized hellscape or a hell like a, you know the very lowest dimensions of reality uh, perverted and uh, made it to their most extreme uh, states of being um physical trauma uh, is usually performed uh, so that human beings can witness it so that intelligent life can witness it and print it on their conscience traumatize them and then produce a specialized version of the life force which is one of insanity the one of terror one of the pure survival instinct and they they crave the survival instinct because to them it is the heroin of their species it is the cocaine of their species much like the orion draco crave human blood that has experienced terror that is filled with adrenaline or are they specifically uh, hunger for the taste for children um because the children are able to experience these emotions and they have unpolluted blood, unpolluted by the the toxins and the um, the materials that they find unfavorable to a creature to to ingest. The same same is applied to these the phantoms, these space vampires, um, these real vampires. They prefer a certain kind of prey over the other. They prefer a certain kind of um, nurtured and specifically harnessed and raised uh, version of their prey. They just they will they will acquire as many as they can. But if they if they can, they'll manipulate and really focus on one individual individual. Excuse me, one individual, and through a series of contacts, communications, and pro 
approximate uh, um, contacts uh, with them. They will um, create an illusion that best suits that specific individual and terrorizes them the most and produces this real reaction the most, uh, the strongest real reaction possible. They will appear as lost loved ones. They will appear as desired, uh, the most desired person in their life. They will appear as uh, relatives. They will appear as themselves if they are egotistical or egomaniacal. They will appear as these creatures and they will begin at first very normal uh, relationships with them they will approach them uh, communicate with them on their level at, on their terms as a member of their species obviously represented as the feminine obviously represented as the lustful counterpart um, but then over time their actions will become more demanding their standards more exacting their treatment more cruel and harsh um, they will drive this individual insane they will perform supernatural uh, feats such as faking suicide but 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 literally going through the act of suicide in front of them to elicit that response that terror response that sympathy response they will um they will reincarnate many many times in their life if the individual tries to escape them they will track them down they will um form a parasitic bond with them they will form the addiction uh, get them addicted to the presence of them get them addicted to the proximity of them it's a very binding and torturous process uh it's a process that when people when the colonists had it of uh, the dark fleet when the ship crew had it in the dark fleet for the first time even though they knew that they were experiencing something that was hostile and was preying upon them uh the feelings of shame uh the trauma of exposure were prevented them from seeking help from prevented them from seeking assistance from the uh, real priestess classes until the first unfortunate ship was almost completely consumed down to a man by these creatures many were taken aboard their uh, mausoleum ships the tomb ships and then imprisoned and and harnessed their energy to power it so that when a rescue fleet or when a companion uh, vessel from the dark fleet uh, went over there all they found were the desiccated dried uh destroyed corpses of the original fleet a uh, crew um, researchers, scientists, engineers, technicians, uh, soldiers, it didn't matter. They were all uh, harnessed and eaten by a very ravenous super predator that operates invisibly. The true form operates invisibly. And this trauma cemented uh, uh, into the Dark Fleet's fate that no, no individual ship who makes contact with any of these creatures is allowed to... Uh, to re-enter the fleet for fear of transmission of these of these predators, these vampiric creatures, are uh, allowed to engage this fleet without uh, substantial um, fleet presence, without substantial reinforcement, without uh, reinforcement from various unconnected uh, vessels so that their emotions do not cloud their judgment, so that they don't uh, fall into the, I the traps of sympathy or mistake the behavior as justifiable in any way because remember they cannot physically see the true vampiric form they can only see the manifested feminine form and um, the once that contact is made once it's in a visible range once you're in that proximity you are also being leached no matter how strong or resolute you are to encountering it this has been seen many times that the people who go to stop them the people who go to counter them the people who go to uh, kill them are, are fed upon just as easily as others uh, it does not really seem to be that anything is immune to them nothing really seems to be um uh, antagonistic spiritually to them or i mean immune to them their psychic influence immune to their persuasion immune to their exploitation luckily they are very few in number and very uh, far in between whenever they are encountered that area is basically quarantined by the dark fleet or the ship is um 
um, attempted to be uh, captured and um, put into lockdown. Remember, the Dark Fleet trades in technology, the not often trades in technology, and in alien species and exploits them. So many of these ships, I mean, none of these ships have really ever been destroyed. They've all been captured and sequestered and imprisoned on different uh, mining colonies and, and uh, colonized asteroids in the Kyber Belt. But the question remains that they have truly been quarantined or maybe disallowed to feed and exist or maybe that they are feeding and existing just unaware to the Dark Fleet, you know, like the Dark Fleet is not able to stop them. Um, there has been a number of attempts at soft disclosure in our society to reference the threat. Many things the Dark Fleet has encountered has been um, softly disclosed to us through Hollywood and through communication, through pop culture. Uh, these threats, though, I don't believe have ever made their way to Earth. But there's a lot of questions that are unanswered as to the 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 actual ability for them to operate on earth without being seen or noticed it would be definitely the wolf in the um the flock of sheep because the number of missing people the number of strange occurrences the number of increasing the amounts of depravity and hedonism in our society surely is not entirely the fault of humans it's not entirely the manifestation of our of our real and um life force it's not a manifestation of that and even then who knows what ultimately their purpose is as a species they could be only tangentially related to this, par to this vampirism. They could have some other ulterior motive. They could have some other ulterior fleet. They could just be the scouts of a race incoming from outside our solar system, trying to gain the energy from our life force, which is given to us from our star. We are all just stardust, after all. This has been Rumors of War 1987. Thank you very much. God bless you. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens a friend. Please give me a like and a subscribe if you haven't already, and share this with anyone you might feel could profit from it. Thank you. This has uh, been Rumors of War 1987. And you guys, be kind to each other. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Incoming. And greetings once again. Salutations to all my listeners out there in Dreamland. How are you guys doing? This is Rumors of War 1987. Back again with another installment of my series, Know the Enemy. This time, I will be discussing the rogue planet Nibiru, Planet X, as it's been popularly known in the world of uh, astrological truth and cosmic conspiracy theories. It is a heavily suppressed entity inside our solar system. NASA had some hesitation on which uh, timeline it was going to commit to. But in the 80s, it was preparing to disclose the, 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 the existence of Nibiru, the presence of Nibiru in our solar system to the American public and explain its unique trajectories around the sun and its relationship with Earth and its history and development cycle as a planet. Because our planets are very closely um, tied together. Our, our paths intersect very regularly and our development is... They're, resp I mean, they're responsible for our development. I was going to say that our development's their responsibility. But, uh, you know, that's a little bit of foreshadowing. As we get to it, let's just discuss it as 
an entity as a uh, faction inside the Cosmic War, or as I learned about it through my training in the Secret Space Program uh, in Solar Warden under the U.S. Navy's uh, authority, but for the Ashtar High Command. They are a highly spiritual being. Uh, I mean, they are a race of highly spiritual beings. They are probably the one being the one type of species that we know that exists uh, in the in the cosmos that is almost entirely purely uh, spiritual with its physical presence being mere manifestations of its astral uh, mastery of its astral presence and its astral uh, matter as astral identity and astral position Nibiru acts much the same way as their physical bodies do and very little is known about the mechanics of such um, existence such uh, higher dimensional uh, existence from our 3D realm in our 3D minds they're very alien and they're very other as is the trajectory of their planet as is the makeup of their planet we're not talking gas giants versus uh, you know molten core planets we're talking about planets that exist as if they're their ghosts, as if they're their phantoms, and they exist as concepts within the psychic, uh, the psychic landscape, the, the astral landscape, more than they do the physical landscape. And you can call them the actual place of dreams, the dreamland. Physics seems to not really apply, or it applies in a form that would we would consider madness. But this, this trajectory, this orbit around the sun is also a type of madness because it's contradictory to what we know. It's anti-logical, but, but the planet itself is, like I said, it's better understood as a psychic phenomenon, as a projection of uh, these beings' thought and uh, mental powers because it's not entirely physical even though when it, we do make contact with it and we are close enough to it to to read it and to gain some cognizance on it to you know use our sensors to measure its its quantifiable uh, essence it is there as a physical uh, body but it's also supposed to be an intersecting course with earth and for years for generations we thought that it was going to appear and disrupt our gravitational field, uh, hit us, impact us, and it would be a planetary collision, a, a T-boning between uh, planets, and it would completely destroy, annihilate the Earth and the Nibiru and transform both into a super planet, um, you know, and maybe split it off into multiple moons. When this impact was supposed to happen, that effect did not take place. It passed straight through the Earth, and it went into Ashtar High Command space. All attempts at landing, all attempts at, um, at, at intercepting, containing, securing this planet failed. It was able to move through every barrier. When forces did land, they were uh, basically unable to communicate back whatever they were finding. Most were completely uh, lost. They lost contact with them and they were never recovered. They were never found. No, no escape attempt was ever made. No rescue attempt was ever possible. Some were returned, 
with erased memories that only the most advanced memory recon- uh, recollection um, practices that the Azure High Command and the Greys were able to perform even recovered what the creature, what the individuals uh, and the creatures sent to this planet surface were able to experience. And what they experienced was that this race was called the Elohim, or this race at least is properly referred to as the word Elohim. And <coughs> every race, every species that encountered them had the same interpretation that they were a race of spiritual entities closely resembling what they knew as the pantheon of gods or as a society of gods as a community of gods or godlike power beings and they were all given a message and the message was of the genesis of the solar system the genesis of the universe which closely coincided to the IDs of Genesis in the Abrahamic faiths and it was much debated whether or not that image was false and was put into the minds of the of the explorers the ones to make contact to um, confuse them or to to uh, pacify them or to uh, brainwash them into understanding the alliance much the same way that Orion Draco try to act as if they're, they're the are there some species creator or some species uh, holy pantheon but it was determined that the accounts were so accurate to each other that, that must have been the case that these creatures had a large uh, part to play in the creation of intelligent life throughout the solar system which is one of the biggest mysteries if you believe that these things are not unanswered are still unanswered that uh, who created the original intelligent species who developed you know these original um, these original uh, planets and moons that we can cultivate and colonize you know who was the first and for years it was thought the Orion Draco were the first but it turns out that the Orion Draco were created by the Elohim as well according to these uh, visions according to these 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 visions which were put inside the explorers to make contact with Nibiru's uh, heads that they were um, that they were originally created by the Elohim they were some of the most gifted and intelligent of the species ever created they grew to be very close confidants with Nibiru during its cycles because they were an extremely long-lived species. In millions of years, they encountered them more than any other uh, species uh, did. And they were able to learn and uh, mimic their culture and their behavior more closely than anyone else or anything else had been able to. Got drunk with that power, got drunk with that success turned around and then corrupted the simpler and uh, more exploitable creations of the Elohim during a great time of absence. Uh, Like I said, I showed you the orbit, the trajectory of this planet is thousands of years in either direction. So it takes a cycle of roughly 6,000 to 12,000 years for them to come back around to the point where they are nearest Earth when they are coming into the intersection with Earth and they pass through it. And when they pass through it, they're able to act on Earth as if they're, they're able to act on their own planet. And they seem to be locked on the surface of Nibiru. They seem to be locked into the, the spherical influence of Nibiru because of their density and their vibration that Nibiru seems to be an extension of them as a species of light as a species of this higher dimensional reality as much as they are an extension of Nibiru 
an extension of Planet X. And so it could be that the planetoid, the phantom planet Nibiru, is creating avatars and representatives of itself in the form of this Elohim race, these, this race of light beings. Or it could be that the light beings, the Elohim, is creating and projecting Nibiru as a containment of their own uh, race, uh, as like a gigantic uh, ship, as a gigantic mental projection, a uh, psychic bubble that they're able, able to travel through. Uh, both, uh, it's actually so bright, but at the same time, intangible, and, um, you know, the, the phase, it's out of phase, it's out of sync with our own reality, that it's like a second star, it, it has enough radiation that it qualifies as a second star, so it might be at a, uh, as the, our sun is, as our star is, that we know as the sun, and it could be a portal, it could be a, a giant open stargate, but it's able to move, they're able to transport it uh, around, or it's, it's set on a rotation and an orbit by itself, and the Nibir, and the Elohim act as the Ashtar High Command do, and they guard or, or domesticate to it, you know, they're local to it, and that's where they exist, because they will not very readily venture forth physically from Nibiru. They don't really travel or explore. There are no colonies of them. There are very few um, accounts of ever witnessing or encountering the Nibiru, uh, the Nibiru race, the Elohim, outside of the of the immediate vicinity of Nibiru itself. The trajectory is so far that physically some some races cannot reach them, like the Ashtar High Command cannot reach them uh, for most of the time that this thing exists because it's so far out. Uh, Dark Fleet has sent probes. The Orion Draco have probes. Greys have tried to investigate, but as far as we can tell, if they are honestly answering, even it's beyond them. It's beyond their technology. Strangely enough, psychics, very high-density beings, can communicate with them or be communicated from uh, with them, communicated by them, um mentally they can be communicated to them through meditation through um divine inspiration or through a type of second voice where they act as a passenger to a uh elohim spirit or an elohim uh avatar or a personification a deity and very little is known about their physical presence but at the same time well, is known as is about their power and their authority, and it seems that every other race inside the solar system was created by them, and is inferior to them. No one really seems to understand why or how they got so advanced. If they're treated as just a material plane uh, player, at the same time, no one can understand why we are in its essence so inferior to them. Uh, we do rely on ancient interpretations of them. Like I said, people throughout the years, throughout the ages have been communicated with this presence that's been understood now as to be from Nibiru. Uh, the Elohim, the El, and they every 6,000 to 12,000 years the planet has come around, the, the Nibiru has come around to Earth. So we believe contact has been made before in the past, and that that contact has led to divine uh, witness of these El as they traveled and did business on the earth what we can tell is that they are very physically large larger than the normal human being 
and if that's if that's the standard that we want to bear throughout the 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 solar system, they're much larger than any other intelligent life form, except for genetically modified Draco and a few choice Xeno races, uh, alien races. But typically, they're much more powerfully built and anthropomorphized than any other creature or existence usually there's a principle of the humanoid and that means that most intelligent creatures uh, either designed by the Elohim on purpose or having come upon that through natural selection bear a, a roughly humanoid shape which is two arms, two legs a tail is optional one head and the truncated torso symmetrical uh, body configuration they seem to run into a sense of bestial ascendancy so that leads us to believe that this is what they chose to represent themselves as. Most interpretations are they are beings of pure light. They are beings of fire or beings of fusion energy. That when they're witnessed, they're just this blinding, energetic uh, play of force and, and heat and combustion. But in their physical representation, they're oftentimes represented as the bull. The bull from heaven. Um, a cosmic type griffin or eagle or a lion something powerful something that resonates with man instinctively and resonates with man spiritually the bull from heaven idea is that it's very popular uh, throughout the ancient world and it's very indicative of them being on a different caliber of existence and power and importance but one also has to stop and think that maybe they do physically look like a bovine or horned um, type of you know communal herbivore uh, elephant or bull or you know wildebeest yak, buffalo uh, sheep, ram um, you know, rhino, and that this is their preferred choice as appearance, or this is what we interpreted them as because of their proximity to such a shape. Usually they're represented with human heads, human, human speaking mouths, but they're also sometimes represented as <clears throat> being upright, but b- being possessed of animal and bestial features and bestial forms uh, typically the heads of uh, animals are having multiple wings having multiple faces having multiple horns either they're wearing a uniform or, or, or a suit of armor some kind of ceremonial outfit some kind of body modification or costuming that gives them the appearance of being a hybrid or being a amalgamation of different creatures and different natural like aspects of existence. Like some will have wings, some will have the face of an eagle, some will have uh, feathers fully adorning their body, some will have the ram's head, some will have four heads, some will have ten horns, some will have you know four or five arms or four or six arms to to eight arms. Um, wings on body shapes, and like like I said, the, of the bull or of the lion. So you get the griffin, you get the sphinx. The sphinx, that's what they look like. They look like sphinxes. 
like how the Sphinx has the head of a human and the face of a human, but the body of a lion. Uh, and originally it was supposed to have wings. Uh, the Greek Sphinx, for example, has wings. And you get that image all the time is that this is like some kind of supernatural uh, ruler of the earth and of the heavens and of the known universe of uh, order. Like I said, when they are presented, they are usually presented in very large figures, and they're usually presented worshiping a star or worshiping a sun. Now, the star is going to be important. I'll get to that in a little bit, but that's the eight-pointed star of Ishtar or the solar boat or the boat of Isis or Apollo's chariot. This idea, this moving star that can that has a path and has a direction is being guided by the gods. Um... Also, flowers have come to represent this type of sun. And this is also an image of just the lion. Uh, I guess it represents, it doesn't have to be too crazy, it doesn't have to be too anthropomorphized or hybrid, but sometimes intelligent lions or uh, speaking cats, big cats, association with, uh, with the mastery of animals and beasts. No. Um... We don't exactly. We don't really know too much because we haven't come in direct contact with them very much on Earth, besides in this last uh, decade or two, and that information is highly secretive, highly classified. It was above my pay grade, to, to use the colloquialist use that catch turn of phrase. But it seriously, literally, was above my pay grade. I was not allowed to uh, understand what we really interacted or what the the outcomes of those interactions were. Uh, this last uh, 20 years worth of contact with the encroaching Nibiru. Now it's on its way out. Now it's uh, going to be leaving again for thousands of years. Um, but we find their relics. And these, these relics were seeded throughout not only Earth, but Earth's moon, Luna, and uh, several other heavenly bodies that we know of for certain and have recovered. But we speculate many, many more. There is a similarity in every single relic in that it is seems to be an advanced source of knowledge and information, as well as powers that we don't really know how to uh, define that are transmutogenic, which cause rapid evolution in those exposed to it. That can cause cellular recombination or genetic uh, recombination to create new life forms. Have you ever seen the movie Annihilation? That concept of the shimmer and of the hyperdimensional 4D rainbow slug type creature. Or have you ever seen the movie 2001 Space Odyssey, which I am using these images to help represent the monolith, which was uh, present during the dawn of man and the creation of man and helped give us our intellect is also present in, on the moon and helps for the second stage of human evolution. That is exactly the types of the nature of these relics. Now, these relics do more resemble the monolith than they do the creature in Annihilation, but at the same time, these monoliths that we find are... They have the same uh, hyper-real psychedelic effect around their environment as does the thing from Annihilation. Uh, rather than just this subtle presence. But ultimately the effect is that it's an other, totally other, capital O other, alien creation that can drive one insane 
by speculating and obsessing over its origins. Because it is so impossible to imagine this thing existing without also the implications of its existence and and man's perspective of its place in the universe. You know, uh, intelligence exists with a superiority complex. It exists with an idea of its own supremacy. And to understand the power and control of the physical universe from things which do not have physical bodies is completely identity crushing it's completely psychically uh, destructive um, to the being now this universe is filled with intelligence but it's filled with intelligence that runs on instinct and and operates on pure instinct uh, pure desires to satiate needs hunger uh, to protect oneself to prepare oneself for the next generation breeding uh, maintaining um, one's health etc etc but this is a thought. This this is intelligent thought. This is design. This is something that would not and could not have evolved naturally. The the creatures of the Elohim are the same. Everything else can be rationally understood as having evolved. Uh, my last on that and so yes um it is a completely it's a complete encounter with the other with something that has no correlation to anything else because it's a predecessor of everything else it's a forerunner of everything else and thus everything that you know as reality or as the real world in the relationships therein, the values of those different creatures and entities and elements and uh, definitions of of beings uh, from vegetable, mineral, uh, animal uh, selves, those are from these creations. Those are the causes are the effects of these causes and not only that but these monoliths are like psychic beacons and something about their architecture and something about their engineering the mathematics behind their construction can create openings into hyperspace into the hyper and yes even though hyperspace can exist as a concept it it references only really the traveling aspect of great distances and very short times going out and in and out of the material 3D realms. You know, not like warp travel. This is the creation of windows, of portals between dimensions themselves. And like we said, we know of six densities, six versions of uh, vibrational energy that create universes for themselves these elemental planes of reality and these beings seem to originate from beyond the six that we know about uh theoretically string theory has 11 of these dimensional realities these quantum realities and uh they exist somewhere above the sixth and travel downward into our matrix using these monoliths, using these uh, self-same devices that are scattered across the known solar system and almost every uh, location. Thus, that has inspired the colonization of these off-world locations, and it's a large part of what the Dark Fleet 
is doing is that they're reclaiming these these relics they're unearthing these monoliths from their burial spots or their hiding locations for the Orion Draco Solar Warden is doing the same and dealing with Dark Fleet to acquire these relics for the Ashtar High Command Ashtar High Command has already uh, obtained a number of these relics some believe that the energy source that the Ashtar High Command uses to run every single one of its vessels including its large moon sized uh, colony ships is the solar cross and the solar cross is a gem stone that can convert solar energy into nigh infinite zero point energy uh, as long as it's in close proximity to being recharged by the sun by direct contact with the sun and sunlight I'm in direct exposure to sunlight but these beings seem to create that energy, seem to create the same energy from the sun, from our solar star, inside each one of their vessels, each inside each one of their ships. When their vessels are spotted, when they are seen um, traveling, the Ashtar are aware of it because it starts recharging their ships. It starts uh, energizing the solar cross that they have. Uh, available in their engines and in, in their what they what they consider their engines the analog for engines inside their ships which are these giant gemstones filled with what we call psychic energy whenever these emissaries have been seen on the ground level in the physical realm in the 3d realm they are very simple and ascetic and monk like entities their avatars, which we can only understand of them as physical avatars, such as the form you encounter of a supernatural psychic entity in a dream, it is just a puppet, it's just a version of itself to pantomime the actions and intentions of this, the higher intelligence, the higher consciousness creature. But when we do encounter them, they are typically in great states of stasis, having, uh, like, uh, Merlin or, um... You know, like a, a pharaoh in a, in a sarcophagus or um, a monk meditating for years in the same position without drinking water and attaining some sort of immortality. These creatures are humanoid in appearance, but they are very, I don't want to say angelic because that's definitely the intention I'm trying to get across, but they're like beings of ether. They're ascetic. They're very... Um, uh, romanticized ideal versions of what a monk or what a religious uh, creature is like an ascetic uh, yogi or you know a Buddhist monk or uh, even you know any kind of religious monk the ships that they seem to pilot and crew and they use for travel are these light ships they're not crystalline ships are shards of gems which the Ashtar High Command is fond of creating in its best engineering um, uh, efforts but they are manifolds of light they are concentrations of light itself like hard light is the technical term thrown around in the aviation intelligence uh, world this hard light is projected from a source which we don't really know this is a huge amount of unknown to the knowns. We do know it's hard light. We do know it's immaterial. We do know it can 
blink in and out of existence, phase in and out of existence. Uh, it doesn't really need to move around a 3D realm. When it does move around a 3D realm, it's incredibly fast. It's incredibly agile. It doesn't follow any of the real known laws of physics. And it's larger from what has been perceived on the inside than the outside. So it's like the TARDIS. It's like, you know, your, your finite perimeter but an infinite interior area. Uh, you know, typical Time Lord engineering and architecture. And the people who have seen it, at least the human beings that have seen it, become obsessed with it. Become, they, even the mere glimpse or the encounter, the briefest of encounters with these in their, their occupations in Solar Ward and in their occupations in the Dark Fleet, regardless of their spiritual attunement and uh, abilities beyond their station or, or bearing or their uh, locality or their nativity, their creed, ethnicity, they become obsessed with the sighting of these ships. They become artistically inspired, they become creatively inspired, and they typically have mental breakdowns and uh, pursue ascetic lives in the study of the materials, the physics behind the creation of these ships. Um, engineering uh, acumen or not, engineer, uh, mechanical abilities or not, they become somewhat of zealots in the pursuit, of, they become obsessed in the pursuit of these ships. When they enter atmospheres, when it has been recorded that the, the ships are entering atmospheres, they go from light, they go from hard light, this jagged light, they go from these beams, these ships of light, into ships of cloud or invisibility. They are like this aether of gaseous material that's not oxygen, it's not CO2, it's not um, you know nitrogen or methane or any real known terrestrial forms of gases. But it's some kind of uh, effect it has around the atmosphere of the ship. It itself does not really attain the, the idea of becoming mercurial like a cloud, but it becomes something that disrupts the air around it and the atmosphere around it, producing mist and producing uh, cloud cover. Uh, yes, the, the ships of the Ashtar can sometimes uh, hide themselves as clouds, just the ships of Greys can sometimes hide themselves in, in clouds like thunderstorms or major storm fronts, but these seem to create the storm naturally around it, as if though there's some incompatibility with the materium of the hard light and the uh, water uh, presence, the presence of uh, water in the atmosphere or the presence of temperature in the atmosphere. The best theory is that the temperature of the ship is hot or, or far colder than the atmosphere around it, thus creating these temporary weather effects. And the patterns are quite unique, and that's exactly how they are traced. That's exactly how they are monitored on Earth. It's through constant observations of cloud formation and the cloud uh, type, like the, def the type of clouds that exist in a certain area. And when very unique or atypical cloud and weather systems form, thus it's understood that the it is not a weather system, it is actually an Elohim ship, a ship in our atmosphere or any atmosphere, and that the Elohim are present. Now, like I said, they've only been encountered as their ascetic avatars, which are only messengers, like very low-level physical incarnations of servants, and 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 they're only meant for servitude. They're only meant to translate messages or relay messages. 
uh, from domestic languages to the Elohim and back and forth. They have no free will of their own. They're artificial beings. But that is not the intent of the Elohim. It looks like when encounter them, when encountered, they they are not this gentle, pacifist, uh, ascetic uh, creature or, or group of creatures, a species. I meant they have a strictness, a severity to the encounter. Typically, it is fatal for those that do encounter them. It's almost nearly uh, unstoppable and almost nearly unavoidable that the wrath of these Elohim, these wrath of these Nibiru, uh, these Nibiru um, natives is expressed in the wholesale destruction of colonies existing on the world, colonies that have uh, reclaimed the relics of theirs, uh, colonies that they just seem to have visited without any discernible reason or motivation or provo- uh, provocation. It doesn't take much to provoke a complete uh, intervention by the Elohim, especially the closer you are to Nibiru. The, the more proximate you are to Nibiru, uh, very few things can keep them at, at uh, keep them from you, keep them from encountering you, and keep them from exacting some kind of uh, offensive against you. Um, everyone is put on the defensive. Everything is put on the defensive when encountered by the Elohim. They typically attack not using infantry or vehicles or any of the conventional elements of military. They attack with these for lack of a better word, angels. And these angels which are artificial creations, artificial servants of the uh, Nibiru uh, Elohim. They are basically sent with missions to destroy, annihilate, control, territory, dominate, and they are uh, various in their size, shape, and construction. They are polymorphic, and they can change uh, the area and density of their bodies, the form and function of their bodies, and they exist made of a material which is not flesh or blood, but a type of variation of the hard light which makes up the ships that they are uh, in that makes up the ships of the Elohim and this hard light um, takes into account the adapting physical situations of the 3D matrix that they that they are in and uh, creates bodies which are perfect to suited perfectly suited for dominating that physical circumstance so no two are like uh, they typically only operate solitarily. Uh, they do operate sometimes in tandem, uh, in pairs, and they do sometimes operate in mass. But very few things are adequate to demand such a response from the Elohim as to operate in mass. And that kind of showing of force is rare. And typically the one is enough to take over a planet or a moon that they need to or, or to dominate any territory from any enemy they 
fight with this the armament of choice as has been witnessed is this hard light still it's everything kind of in the 3d material belonging to the elohim and principle is made up of hard light there is no physicality to their weaponry it is a manifestation of this hard light um and this hard light is different than the materium that is made of the angels, but only so in its effect. It's incredibly dense energies. It's incredibly chan uh, focused and channeled energy. Uh, we don't know if it's psychic in origin or merely a ability that the hard light has, but it's it's incredibly powerful to say the least it's incredibly devastating to be on the receiving end of any of this attention uh, from an angel uh, however fallen that angel may be and that's foreshadowing for later but no force in existence has demonstrated the ability to survive and, and defeat an Elohim when encountered are these angels because nothing has ever really faced an Elohim per se no one really has any encounter with the direct member of the species of Elohim it's always in these representatives known as angels and it's always in the the form of uncommunicative uh, uncommunicative universal wrath it's it's hard to define them as hostile because there's no treaty or negotiation or motivation present. It seems to defy logic. It seems to defy the uh, abilities of other intelligent species to reason what exactly calls for the responses that, that these, these angels deliver. Now, like I said, this hard light is an extremely dangerous uh, projection of, of energy and it doesn't seem like they are affected by notions of energy supply they don't seem to run out of energy it just seems that the fatigue they have incredibly near infinite stamina they um, can deliver heretofore unknown limits of destructive power and range and um you know woe be onto you if you are encountering one of these angels very few live or very few survive the encounter most of the intelligence that we've received are from distant monitorings and uh the meditative visualizations from the vril and from the ashtar high command's mental uh uh, projections from their astral eye uh, they, these creatures do exist on the astral realm as well, these creatures do exist on the spiritual realm as well um, they are, they're even stronger on these realms, that is their native realm um, and it can be considered that these angels are considerably weaker than the Elohim themselves in these astral realms, but they're still sufficient to annihilate the astral projection, they, they cut the silver cord, cut the astral cord, and destroy the being that is visited, that is translating through the astral realm on these higher density levels, effectively eliminating this being from the universe. Um, that is a power that we 
only thought was reserved for the Orion Draco or for the Ashtar, but even the Ashtar and the Orion Draco both fear the encounters they have with the Elohim because even their most powerful of psychic travelers are completely underprepared and inadequate to deal with these Elohim uh, weapons, these the weapons and the, the hard light, or not, we just couldn't call it the hard light, the dimensional lights, the weaponry they have, the dimensional spheres, the astral spheres. They are defenseless, absolutely defenseless, even though they may in certain cases be strong enough to engulf entire species, the Ashtar and the Orion Draco uh, both fear the Elohim and fear Nibiru as well as try to strengthen themselves through acquisition of their abilities and their technology and their reliquary um, they want to get their hands on this flaming sword. They want to get their hands on this divine ability to act as judgment and to uh, enact their will on this in this 3D matrix and higher densities as well. Like I said, most of the times when we do encounter the angels and these these avatars of theirs, they are they have no personalities. They are they are biological, but only in the most basic definitions of the word their spirit is tethered to the their connection to the Elohim and uh, they offer no information at, no matter what lengths they are to be interrogated no matter what is done to try to communicate with them or, or, or negotiate with them they are only serve their function they don't seem to be able to waver from the directions of the Elohim from their objectives as servants of the Elohim they are completely under the control of the Elohim. Now, there are there is some debate, and there's a lot of evidence, and there are rumors that uh, the Elohim are currently pursuing a rogue member of their own species. No matter how advanced and incredibly noble of spirit and physicality that the Elohim are, there seems to have been dissension in their own ranks due to the position they have shepherding the life forms of the universe. This is the actual... This is actually the discovered information of the combined uh, solar systems intelligence gathering and intelligence um, uh, uh, I guess you call it history and dealing with Nibiru is that an Elohim named Enana who we later named Ishtar from the human tongue in the human society broke ranks from the council of the Elohim the ruling council of the Elohim being an Elohim herself was possessed of this great power, this great higher density, nativity, and 3D invulnerability. She traveled to Earth, or Earth, Mars, and Venus, respectively, over time, probably influencing the Ashtar High Command, the human empire, the human being species, and the Orion Draco, and their in their foothold, their dominant uh, territory of Mars, back when they were a solidified empire, and educated each ones about the the astral realms and the spiritual uh, authority over 
the physical authority over the physical 3D matrix and in gaining their abilities to control elements in the astral and the spiritual, these higher density um, existences, they were able to exert authority on the physical, creating the secret space programs and creating uh, their evolution, their their track onto their way to godhood or in the, the line they will be like gods. Thus, she took the ultimate archetype of the rebel the ultimate archetype of the rebellious female and created that in our souls as the image that we worship the image that we thought we are from that we originate from and this delusion this hijacking of Genesis is a big part of why the cosmic war exists because these factions are ultimately rebellious and they cannot exist in unity. They exist in a state of anarchy. They exist in a state of rebellion towards the natural mastery of order and peace and cooperation and creation. Yeah, replacing it with destruction and domination and, um, and slavery. But slavery to one's desires and passions and instincts and what they view as natural and ultimately the most correct uh, input and expression of oneself is to act naturally, is to act through the instincts that we have from our genesis, from our origin. That's why she is seen as Shiva, the destroyer. That's why she is seen as the great mistress of chaos, Hecate. And that's why she is considered the enemy of the Elohim. And that is so far what we know of the Elohim. Like I said, there's a lot of unknown to it. They're very mysterious. But they are definitely from Nibiru, related to that phantom planet. This has been Rumors of War in 1987. Thank you for taking this ride with me. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. And a friend sharpens a friend. Shabbat Shalom. God bless you and your families. Be kind to each other and remember the golden rule.
everyone out there in dreamland hope you guys are having a pleasant sleep well it might be time to wake up to the galactic truth the truth around you and the truth that we're all in exactly like i said you better start believing in ghost stories because you're in them and this installment of know the enemy is a spooky one it involves very dark powers from very low densities and negative spaces this is, this is Rumors of War 1987, coming to you from a very stormy Corpus Christi, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else, so God willing, let us continue. And by the way, I was asked where I'm getting this information from, and I'm channeling raw, I'm, chal- I'm channeling the um, Farsi or Toth, I am channeling uh, Hermes Tresmagistus and the spirit of wisdom in the mortal realms and tapping into the Arkashaic uh, libraries anyone can do it anyone can can take out a, any amount of knowledge or wisdom from the libraries at any time for free it's all about the willingness to knock on the door and glorify and ask the Lord for information to enlighten your fellow neighbor. You have to do it out of love. You have to do it out of a good spot in your karmic uh, your karmic um, gravity. You have to basically be enlightened emotionally and psychologically and then you can be enlightened um, through the Holy Spirit. But you have to join him. You have to take his hand. You have to walk the narrow path. You have to detoxify yourself. You have to uh, pledge allegiance to true and higher powers. Uh, you you cannot serve two masters. You cannot drink from two cups. And, you know, and it's easier for a rich man to get into heaven. I mean, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to the gates of heaven. Now, it does. It, it, no amount of money, no amount of earthly treasures can attain this information. The powers that rule this world want to keep this information secret. They want to classify it. They want to keep it uh, private and exclude you from enlightening your soul, from attaining uh, nirvana in this life cycle. But you must be the one to take it from them. You must be the one to uh, see it and, and be able to recreate it and rebuild it. It's up to you. So let's begin. And as a saw, I want to know the enemy. I'm going to be talking about the Saturnine, the beings that were encountered in, on the moon of Titan, guarding Saturn, which is in fact a harmonic prison. It is, an, it is a, a, basically a dark matter prison controlled by harmonics and sound waves. And it is holding it is the it is the holding place of some great source of low density energy that it acts like a real beacon it acts like a lighthouse for real and it's incredibly powerful but very erratic when it um when it signals and so it drew the attention of the dark fleet the dark fleet uh was counseled by the orion draco into into expanding forward into the moons of Jupiter from the Kyber belts and uh, waging war and conquest. And in these wars and conquests, the Dark Fleet was able to profit and to gain much uh, wealth and uh, 
fine-tune itself as a war-fighting tradition, a war machine that was extremely powerful, um, probably disputably the most powerful war machine of conquest that the solar system has recently seen. And this power uh, got to the Dark Fleet's heads. It grew their egos, it expanded their pride, and so they saw that they were invincible. They thought they were, um, you know, rightfully the heirs of the solar system. All they had to do was expand and uh, reach with its fleets uh, the great depths of the cosmos, the great abyss of the cosmos, and surely, you know, it would have the largest dominion in the history of the uh, solar system with the leadership of the Orion Draco and the disposal of the post-scarcity, you know, uh, economy of of the ICC. Uh, these powers working together with the Dark Fleet would spell victory. And, you know, it was just a matter of time. The victory was inevitable. Their worldview was shocked, and the worldview of their of the galactic worldview was uh, was broken when they encountered mysterious monolithic uh, ruins and uh, ancient uh, constructs of the Nibiru of the Elohim uh, race from Nibiru and then they realized and learned that Nibiru was on this multi-thousand year cycle and the true power and extent of the Elohim as beings of light, beings of a higher density Um, and they grew greedy uh, wanting to know the secrets of the Elohim, wanting to be able to defend themselves from uh, the Elohim which every encounter had been disastrous judgments against them Um, so they sought to reclaim and uh, discover and wage archaeological warfare on the Elohim and all their ancient ruins uh, scattered across the moons of Jupiter and the Kuiper Belt and you know the solar system at large human nature is human nature though and uh, the process was perverted for personal gain and power Uh, the process was corrupting the process was full of greed and dark intention and the dark fleet not often um, couldn't you know they they embraced that darkness they embraced that corruption Um, they became they became very um, psychopathic in their obsession to uh, to acquire this this power to wage war against the Elohim and you know a snake uh, is corrupting them a snake was giving them this wisdom a snake was helping them uh, defy the the will of this greater power you know much like Lucifer was in the garden and that was the Orion Draco if you consider the dark fleet uh, Adam the I mean yeah the, the you know the, the Earth Alliance Adam and then Dark Fleet Eve and there was the serpent in the garden and that was the ancient ruinous empire of the Orion Draco who also wanted this uh, these monoliths and they knew that the real source was out there so gung ho hellbent for leather the Dark Fleet uh, began to train specifically for these uh, these missions and started to select their uh, gene stock with a greater uh, um, expectancy a greater strictness a greater expectation and set their sights forth on Saturn and its moons because of the great drill beacon that was there. So regardless of the of the species occupying it, regardless of the conditions there or the, uh, the circumstances, they were going to conquer it. They were going to militarily approach this as a conquering empire. There was very little effort put into peace. So to understand the Saturn mission campaign to conquer this world, you have to understand Saturn itself. It's huge, but it's strange. And it, um, you know, has... Uh, greater gravity but lower density and the the makeup of the atmospheric giant would make it float on the world's oceans because it's harmonically bonded together there is no center of this world besides this great power so we suspected it is that it's the sun it's a sun and a star that they imprisoned and blocked off with this atmosphere to stop the shine Uh, they increased the um, increased the density of this atmosphere around it this artificial atmosphere around it and kept that atmosphere imprisoned with harmonics basically entrapped in a wall of sound or in a sphere of sound and they, the rings around it are um, 
great, there's very little understood about them. They're a great mystery. They are put in place there by an artificial process. But the moons of Saturn are actual physical um, terra. They're physically, physical uh, orbiting bodies. And so the moons of Titan were colonized. Um, a presence of the Dark Fleet, a presence of the Notwaffen was put into every um, single moon that they discovered, especially on Titan. Titan was the center of uh, colonizing efforts and... Um, that was basically the the uh, heart, the capital of this new uh, burgeoning empire around Saturn for the Notwaffen. The distances are great, though, and at first, uh, only scouts and uh, you know basic uh, supplies were sent to establish these prefabricated colonies developed by the ICC, and only um, isolated ships because nothing was really seen, nothing was really scanned there was no uh, presence of a civilization uh, regardless of what that civilization was and on Titan uh, rudimentary uh, exploration of the rings began, Titan was basically the launch base for a number of expeditions and explorative missions, so around the rings of Titan a lot of surveillance was uh, done and they realized that the spectrum of light that you that actually hits uh, Saturn being so far away from the uh, original sun, uh, our sun Soul is uh, only a fraction of the actual mass, the actual design of the rings. Uh, is seen through infrared, seen through uh, ultraviolet light. They're actually the rings are very much like a cloud. They're like an orbiting cloud of matter. Most of it dark matter. Uh, most of it like some kind of um, very gaseous, insignificant things. But there are substantial bodies, substantially uh, sized bodies. It's like a mini asteroid belt. It's, but it's just very tightly and artificially constructed to help out the resonance uh, imprisonment of the, 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 the star, the hypothesized star of Saturn. So while investigating, they started finding that there were these ships. There were um, ships that were intelligently piloted that were 2,000 miles long that were massive in size. They were the size of the Earth in diameter. They were built like cylinders. O'Neill cylinders are built like the Einsman uh, starship. So it was a con congruent evolution of star travel, of space travel. Uh, the same shared by humanity, the same shared by the greys, the same shared by um, elements of the uh, Dark Fleet. And there were also variations on this design, but every single ship that was encountered was absolutely massive. Much, much larger than the Dark Fleet's, Expeditionary Fleet's uh, largest ships at the time. Much larger than any ship that was known to be in the area at any time, which was strange given the lack of colonization and uh, development on the surface of the moons or on the surface, and the impossibility of, of uh, being on the surface of Saturn. So they were wondering where these ships came from. Having experienced um, the space vampires before, they, the life force vampires, uh, and being dark matter, and but the crypt ships being similar in design, uh, they were cautious. They kind of kept their distance, and given the size of these ships, they didn't want to. They, did, they were not prepared. They didn't want to engage them because they just didn't have the manpower and equipment um, and technology there at the time. Is basically the fringes of the ability for humankind to travel. You know, it is extremely distant away. So they continued to scan. They continued to keep a, a distance. They continued to do reconnaissance on Titan, and. Um, and try to exploit it for the relics. They were searching for relics. They were trying to find these ancient ruins, but at the same time, they were trying to look for precious metals, I mean, minerals, uh, anything that might be of value to them, uh, because their elements, the Dark Fleet, were in conjunction with the ICC and the satisfying those desires. But at the same time, they were being pushed by the uh, Orion Draco yeah, further and further on their higher real type leadership, their real leadership. Many of these uh, mysterious uh, piloted vessels were seen and spotted. They were seen working together. They were seen um, performing reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance on the uh, Dark Fleet's vessels and the Dark Fleet's uh, colonies. Uh, they kept their distance. There was no engagement either into diplomacy or to uh, hostility. They def 
ethnically divide any type of attempt to communicate. Uh, attempts were taken at first, but given that these were an alien, this was an alien species and these were mysterious ships, and they were presumed to be hostile given the uh, past experience with the life form vampires, no real attempt at communication was made because they didn't want to, uh, or no attempt at unencrypted communication was made because they didn't want to alert them of their presence and, you know, uh, set off a preemptive uh, attack or anything because, you know, their, their process, their endeavor, their expedition was really uh, valuable to them. It was really high stakes. These ships were absolutely massive in design. They were getting larger and larger as the experience um, uh, transpired, as they continued their expedition and colonization efforts. Fleet si and ship sizes the size of 6,000 to 10,000 miles, and um, still the same diameter of Earth, if not larger, uh, were being seen. It, it began to boggle the mind that any empire or any intelligent race could develop these these ships worthy of any empire, uh, you know, befitting any kind of major spacefaring power, and have gone undiscovered and uncontacted for so long. The Dark Fleet started to um, try to communicate with connect its Orion Draco Masters and to um, divulging any any knowledge they had of them, but the Orion Draco seemed to be increasingly, increasingly obsessed with. Um, with, with understanding Saturn as a function, and so pushed the Dark Fleet to um, operate and ignore uh, the, these ships, these mysterious ships, which was out of nature of the Orion Draco, and also showed that the Orion Draco themselves were at a loss. Uh, they were very suspicious because of the Orion Draco's seemingly limited experience out in these realms. So the Dark Fleet did as their masters commanded them, uh, continuing to perform reconnaissance as they started encroaching on the surface of Saturn into the rings, collecting samples, uh, performing uh, rudimentary, you know, scientific endeavors, as well as further scouring and developing the surface of Titan and the surface of other moons. By this time, the population was growing, the population was steadily increasing, and um, the expedition looked like it was going to be a profitable success as the first monoliths were discovered on Titan. Uh, these monoliths, though, had a very strange design, uh, even for the extremely alien and other designs of previously recovered monoliths from the Elohim, uh, from Nibiru, uh, from Planet X. These were designed like whales, and they operated and performed similar biological movements as whales, uh, fluid organic movements as whales, but they were made of the same material that made the monoliths, and they flew. They did not seem to obey the laws of physics. They seemed to uh, be propelled by very strange uh, energies, and they seemed to have an intelligence and a personality of their own. Unlike other monoliths, either they were uh, very numerous in comparatively. Uh, usually, one moon would have one monolith, um, you know, as as an average, and sometimes only a planet would have one monolith if it had it at all. But this the surface of Titan was uh, covered in gigantic pods, uh, ranging into the hundreds of these these monolithic uh, materials. So it was understood they were the base material for this uh, strange alien other um, solid of this mass that would go into become the monoliths, be carved to monoliths, or what. And the crews of, that were colonizing Titan weren't able to readily capture them. Uh, they were trying to engage them with whatever limited abilities they had and whatever means at their disposal. But these these monolithic whales were uh, capable of reaching an end and going into orbit. They were capable of diving into incredible depths, into the uh, localized oceans on Titan. Um, they were able to uh, survive without any nourishment, and they never seemed to fatigue. It was also that time they started uh, finding other uh, creatures that were 
based on the same materials as the monoliths as well. And this was strange because the monolithic material has very similar uh, physical components to the 4D black goo, the, the programmable black metal, matter, the liquid metal that uh, exists in this quantum state of flux uh, that the Orion Draco uh, favor, that the Orion Draco built their society around and built their, uh, their spacefaring empire around. And these, these monoliths started taking humanoid forms. They started taking more forms that were recognizable by the, by the colonists as the colonists made contact with them. The more the colonists would observe them and the more the colonists would interact with them, the more the monolithic creatures would take the appearance of the colonists themselves. Um, so there was some kind of concern because the Dark Fleet had encountered the replicators only a decade or two before. Only a decade and a half, I'm sorry, uh, before. And they had learned that this, that was an extremely hostile race and it was very alien race that mimicked ecosystems but was artificial and, and could not be communicated with but was not the monoliths they seek it, it did not give them the same benefits as these monoliths from the Elohim which was their true mission and the mission that the Orion Draco were obsessed over uh, the Orion Draco once they learned about these creatures expressed extreme hostility and urged the dark fleet to uh, eradicate them and to eliminate them as uh, you know living eliminate their physical forms as the Orion Draco failed to um, engage them in the higher density realms because they are like a 40 up to a 60 creature they, they were actually unable to engage them they were unable to uh, see them so because uh, they weren't physically there they were trying just to urge the dark fleet to handle it entirely communication uh, was established diplomacy was established by the real priestess class and the uh, research and scientific staff as well as the uh, and, and all of this was recorded and observed uh, by the military uh, attachment and so all forms of dark fleet were becoming um, increasingly uh, you know aware of this at the higher echelons and they, this was a very um, serious matter was establishing contact with an alien intelligence that seemingly was a replicator that but basically formed and acted like a replicator, but was, you know, um, existed on the, on the higher densities, existed on the spiritual realm, and also was made of the same material that, uh, that the monoliths were made of. The theory at the time was that the replicators had approached the monoliths left by the Elohim, converted the matter, became that matter, or reproduced it because it was superior to all other uh, matters that they had encountered, and it formed an ecosystem. Um, and, uh, basically an ecosystem as they have done on the surface of Jupiter as they have done on the moons of Jupiter but this time on the moons of Saturn and the ships that they had built were some kind of expression of theirs to build O'Neill cylinders or what would be O'Neill cylinders um, you know some, some evolutionary advancement of their own but because the replicators are very you know uncommunicative and they're very uh, strange logically like they're very irrational that it's very um, you know this was the first step to actually communicate with them and understand them many attempts were made to communicate with them as they had done with the replicators but then they started realizing that they didn't have the same um, logic or, or thinking abilities they didn't have the same personality the same consciousness as the replicators the real priestesses uh, could make a connection with them on a real level which is impossible with the art, entirely artificial replicators there was a spirituality to these creatures there was a, a, a theory a very uh, powerful theory that gained a lot of importance was that the replicators had gained some kind of spirit and that is still a leading theory as to explain what the Saturnite are or maybe the Saturnite created the replicators in their own image uh, physically like to be able to convert and control this matter but they were like the products of the monolith from the Elohim um, the first communications went poorly after this theory was tested after they started to try to experiment by uh, sending EMP pulses and um, and testing the limits of the physicality of the replicators as they had learned to do on the Jupiter and the moon as in, in service of Jupiter. The attendant staff, even though they were wearing environmental protective gear, uh, were 
burned and eliminated by electrical fire by being shocked, which was the a condensation of the EMP blast that they had attempted to use against the the uh, Saturnine. Uh, basically, just blasted and focused on them uh, and, and amplified. They died of being shocked by lightning. Um, basically, they were hit by their own their own force blast. And this is important because this is the commonality in the interactions, the hostilities that would accrue, was that the Saturnine can redirect energy sent to it because of its um, particular construction, of its particular uh, material. The, the intervening um, reinforcements were teleported there through quantum travel by the real processes by the Orion Draco. But then the same powers that they were uh, using to teleport malfunctioned and they were sent back into the past after having landed and made contact with the communication bases on Titan. This was extremely strange because they had the Saturnine had seemingly weaponized time travel using the teleporting energies that the Dark Fleet had just experimentally uh, discovered in the, in the early 2000s, because this happened very recently in the early 2000s, and been able to uh, just harness that energy, redirect the, uh, the, the attending commandos, the supporting staff, and sent them back in time to an extremely hostile environment. Uh, what is even stranger is that after there was only one of them left, the sole survivor was then teleported back to its, origi- uh, its destination, its, uh, I mean, its origin. That one single commando was left to tell the tale of what happened, which is the only way the Dark Fleet really knows for sure what happened. Uh, and it was theorized that that original commando was sent back to the ancestors of the Orion Draco's homeworld. Um, and that original colony of the Orion Draco, uh, that savagery, is those savages are what killed the Dark Fleet commandos, but at the same time connected the Orion Draco to the eventual Dark Fleet in this gigantic looping um, series of events that would eventually see the Orion Draco prepare for, plan to develop, and then help create the Dark Fleet, the Notwaffen, to then go serve and uh, destroy the Saturnine, which they might have had some uh, long-standing ancient knowledge of. So instead of suffer another um, reinforcement attempt, or another attack attempt by the Dark Fleet, by Notwaffen, the Saturnine teleported a planet, uh, teleported that, that communications colony off the Titan. It basically used the same teleportation powers, used that same energy, and teleported that colony off a of Titan. It was mysteriously gone. Uh, surveillance, scans, recon, everything could not pinpoint it. They couldn't find it. Uh, the colonists, though, were still in attempting to communicate, but just in a different location. They, they survived. They were not destroyed. So the communication relays have been, you know, gathered. They have been collected. Uh, they have been received by other not often communications efforts, and they... Uh, they know that these colonists are still alive. They know these colonists are still engaging in that communication. They're acting and serving as hostages, um, which is a statement of the Saturnine's character, Saturnine's personality, their nature, which cannot be understated, is that they didn't take the lives of these colonists but continued to communicate with them, especially given how the communications nature and relationships between the two, the Saturnine and the Dark Fleet, would soon go out, soon turn out. So the communication efforts of the Dark Fleet, the real priestesses in this colony, to the uh, Saturnine, are uh, very strange and um, they have recorded their speech they have uh, recorded their language they can't communicate but they can understand and the Saturnine can understand their communications but they don't have a commonality of uh, producing um, audible communication just listen, just listen to the actual images and uh, sound that were received and you'll understand let's go
that's truly horrifying. Um, those tapes, to actually hear these, those audio messages, and to imagine the the fear and the terror uh, experienced by the surviving colonists cannot be understated either. Although the encounter of the alien, the encounter of the other, is oftentimes the most shocking and the most uh, frightening moments of anyone's life. That is extremely traumatizing to be in the presence of an alien and to be in the presence of an extraterrestrial. Uh, images have shown, and data has been collected to suggest that the Saturnine are aware of the the emotional duress and the the stress that their parents and their uh, you know their presence causes the colonists, and so can take and have taken forms that are more uh, common, more uh, agreeable, the more uh, satisfying and uh, enjoyable to the human colonists, even though the experience is still quite strange. And they have taken great efforts in teaching us the language that they use. And they use a language built on geometry, and they use a language that's built on geometry that the creation of seems, or the, I guess the understanding of the literacy of, seems to be so innate and basic in the human uh, mindset that we understand it as sacred geometry. We understand it as the occult practice of sacred geometry of the Solomon type circles of uh, cult symbolism. Uh, this is every, uh, every side is a sound and the complexity of the geometrical shape is the complexity of the word. And the words are directly related to um, concepts which intelligent creatures seem to share across the solar system. So they don't have a psychic ability to communicate much like the uh, like the Ashtar do. They don't have, which can invoke the emotions and can invoke the memories of uh, people and intelligent species regardless of their ability to share the tongue. Uh, the Orion Draco uh, do very much the same thing. When they do choose to communicate, the Greys have actually mastered and uh, are well-versed and literate in many, um, they're very fluent in many languages, and they have specific members that dedicate their entire life to accumulating the ability to translate. These seem very uh, much only able to communicate with their numerological symbols, with their numerology, and their numerology, though, seems to be more advanced. It seems to be more of an advanced language to than any um, previously experience previously uh, known language uh, this is extremely helpful in understanding the mystery behind Saturnine because their motives and their history it, uh, you know is very mysterious uh, but it's only understood by the complexity of their of their intellect uh, by the complexity of their experience um, it's no doubt that they came to this uh, language after many uh, millennia of existence this is not uh, something that was chanced upon and it's not the simple primate uh, vocalizations that human beings insist are language of, you know with the artistic numerical uh, system that we call language this is a type of communication which is the backbone for the matter of the universe and has been transmitted psychically to explain the universe and is readable and is intelligible by any creature that has a psychic um, has a psychic presence that has a spirit that has a soul the real priestesses were realizing this were understanding it and they were being able to uh see that this and as they communicated this uh to the like relayed this to the uh, dark fleets hq, HQ to their uh, leadership um it is unclear whether or not these informations were uh, sabotaged by the orion draco or that they were intercepted by the uh dark fleets uh masters the orion draco and uh the withheld for or delayed so that the dark fleet wouldn't build sympathies towards the saturnine wouldn't build um any kind of uh anything else besides a uh, militaristic intent like you know, uh, war fighting intent and the dark fleet began to prepare its forces to uh, engage the ships engage them with the knowledge and information that they had however limited that was the information could also have been sent from a great a, a greater distance than we can you know we can fathom comfortably and took just a very long time to cross 
uh, distance because you know, the, the fate and the um, location of the colony that was taken are still unknown. That's still a mystery. Now, um, what is very mysterious, though, is that because what was gathered, the language of, that was gathered, was um, visible in human history. So it was visible in the development of our civilization, and our development of our civilization is tied to the Orion Draco, and it's tied to um, the Ashtar High Command. So it's also theorized that the this communication with this, this species could have either created the Orion Draco, they could have created the Ashtar High Command, they could have created uh, the human beings on Earth, they could have created the psychic um, well that we all tap into, the, the, the astral realm. Uh, even though they, they seem to be very elusive and very covert in their maneuverings in the 4D realm, um, they don't seem to have a very strong presence uh, there because they are very, um, you know, withdrawn and aloof. But it's undeniable that the sacred numerology, that their geometric-based uh, consciousness that they're thinking, makes them almost uh, makes them very likely candidates to be intelligent designers. Now, the current theory is that the Elohim of the Nibiru uh, helped create many intelligent species, including the Ashtar, the humans, and the Orion Draco, but that the Nibiru's uh, orbiting cycle keeps it uh, kind of distant. It keeps it really distant away from its own creation, and it only really interferes during this time. If this was the case, the Saturnine could be related to the Elohim. They could be created by the Elohim themselves, or they could have, you know, uh, been a separatist faction originating from Nibiru, originating from that strange uh, rogue planet, coming down to uh, this solar system, and then um, developing these advanced intelligences, developing this life. Uh, they could also have sacrificed their existence to imprison whatever was on Saturn uh, with Saturn, with what we know as Saturn. That could be their complete dedication as a species is to keep this prison uh, secure because the events that would follow uh, when the Orion Draco engaged them militarily when they began to, began their campaign to eradicate the uh, Saturnine uh, and destroy them uh, at the Orion Draco's order because the Dark Fleet is not free. The Dark Fleet is not... Um, able to resist the Orion Draco's order or the Orion Draco will uh, no matter if they are separatists or not the Orion Draco are still uh, dominant in their spiritual uh, realm, their spiritual uh, presence, they control them that way uh, you know, rather than physically but physically they also control them because they don't want to engage them in hostilities uh, because of their uh, close ties to each other and the power of the Orion Draco so the Orion Draco may have ordered the Dark Fleet to eradicate them to prevent the Orion Draco's origins from being known, from being um, discovered as an, as a species that was developed at the same time as the human race and or, you know, that, that was developed and then manipulated the human race into obeying itself rather than um, the Saturnine or the Elohim. Either way, the uh, Elohim um, were theorized as having some kind of relation to them. And, and we know that the Elohim are extremely powerful. But the presence of time travel was the one thing that they should have understood is that the the real priestesses who were communicating, the colonists who were communicating, realized Saturnine had the ability to tell time. They had the ability to see the future. But it wasn't seeing the future. They had already lived it. They were very much uh, masters of time travel and masters of um, understanding how the time flowed and the, the time, um, you know, basically how time was itself organic and it could be, could be mastered, could be domesticated, could be harnessed. They were communicating this with the colonists, and the colonists were understanding and trying to communicate with the Dark Fleet. But the Dark Fleet was already on its way, uh, and it couldn't refuse the orders that were given to it by the Orion Draco. And um, the, the Dark Fleet was approached and intercepted. It was, um, you know, it was counter, it was intercepted, and it was ambushed by the Saturnine. But the Dark Fleet themselves uh, were able to, um, you know, get, get a foothold inside this, the 
the surrounding space, the surrounding atmosphere of Saturn. And it was this foothold that would begin a long and arduous war of attrition. Um, the Orion, the Orion Draco were ordering the Dark Fleet to uh, orbitably, orbitally bombard Saturn, uh, engage them with as many ships as they know allowable. The good majority of the Dark Fleet uh, approached Saturn and has been engaged in this constant uh, war of attrition with Saturn. Saturn is now the official, and now understandably the most hostile place. It's the most um, brutal uh, battle zone. It's it's literally uh, the the pinnacle of the Dark Fleet's war machine, uh, and the the strongest reflex they have in, in waging campaigns against other species directed at a singular planet, and it covers the surrounding orbital uh, path of Saturn for thousands of miles in every uh, direction, in every angle of attack. Uh, many millions of people have died, many millions of, of soldiers and uh, fleet crew of the Dark Fleet have died, many not often uh, officers have died, many brothers have died, many Saturnine ships have been destroyed, um, although they have been destroyed so rarely and so fewly that um, an outsider perspective could see that the Saturnine are withholding their their their, their quote unquote surviving, and um, and they use their time travel to understand uh, the events before they happen, much like the uh, the situation in um, Edge of Tomorrow, where the, the the cyclical loops of time, the cyclical series of time, are trapping the spirits of the Dark Fleet, trapping the existence of the Dark Fleet, and this nonstop perpetual war that. Um, that not only exists in a 3D forward sense, but exists in a cyclical pattern of uh, attack, counterattack, um, you know, victory and defeat, where the timelines are constantly tested and that the battle goes both ways uh, on different timelines and they try to uh, best each other on an astral plane, they try to best each other on the physical plane, they try to um, um, destroy each other with, with extreme prejudice. The Saturnine are a war-fighting people. They, their main weaponry is, un, the mechanisms behind are unknown. The intelligence on these, this race is extremely limited, but the lasers are extremely powerful. They can operate uh, across the solar system, target colonies uh, that are way out of range of the Dark Fleet's uh, capabilities to target, you know, from that location, the distance. Um, the lasers can track and they can move back and bend around uh, space and time. They don't need linear trajectories. They can actually bend. Uh, the mechanics behind these 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 energy weapons, these direct energy weapons, is uh, you know is shockingly advanced. It, it, it's something that is much coveted by the ICC and by the Dark Fleet's military engineers. Um, the Dark Fleet is uh, it has very limited assistance, but you know its numerical superiority already is uh, vast um, compared to the Saturn IX. Just fleets and fleets, hundreds and hundreds of ships, thousands of ships, millions of men are engaged um, throughout this war. Uh, it's been going on since 2000 and I want to say six, 2006 probably. And so it's basically a going to be a never-ending war unless the Dark Fleet is willing to retreat. But the amount of losses uh, further cemented inside this series of this karmic battle, the spiritual battle. Um, Saturn itself is the target. They're trying to unlock whatever is inside that you know, but it's it's trying to learn a, a, a learn the combination of a safe while in the middle of a naval gunfight, you know, naval uh, battleship uh, fight, and so it's extremely difficult and, and treacherous for the crews involved. Um, a number of uh, I guess you call it aerial engagements. Number of um, battle fleets engagements are conducted around the clock every day of the week, every day of the year um, for, for, for last uh, 
15 years. Uh, it's extremely uh, brutal combat. Uh, it's extremely dangerous combat. But the Dark Fleet is unable to retreat because of the Orion Draco. And the Orion Draco are pressing the attack, trying to free the real source that they would consume or be empowered by and be able to re regain their empire, regain their former status as masters of the known solar system and actually be able to wage war with the um, with the Ashtar High Command and eventually with their creators, uh, the Elohim from Nibiru. Excuse me. All right, so the... Uh, the main problem is that the, the, the powerful weapons of the Saturnine um, are formidable, and they, the Saturn itself is like a fortress. Saturn itself is a, is a, is a prison, yes, uh, but it's also a battle fortress. It, the planet itself has been arrayed and, uh, with defensive measures, and the logic and intelligence of the Saturnine are, um, are uh, you know, ex extremely hard to counter. It's extremely um, unprecedented. And so this is, uh, right now, the the biggest war zone. This is right now the most dangerous uh, place in the universe, the known universe, uh, are the moons of Saturn and the, the orbit of Saturn. The Saturnine uh, techno prisoners, the Saturnine um, fight very uh, uh, defensively, but they have no mercy or um, or ethics, or they don't follow any known uh, battle um, stratagems that are that are apparent, you know, that are readily understood by the Dark Fleet. It is definitely a, um, a battle between two um, two very well uh, well-established, well-armed war machines. The Saturnine Empire, however mysterious its origins, was extremely well-advanced and whatever its purposes seem to be willing to defend Saturn itself uh, with the lives of every Dark Fleet opponent they encounter. The Dark Fleet is, you know, just is just uh, supplying this war zone with uh, thousands of ships, yeah, dozens of fleets, millions of men, um, and it doesn't seem to be fatiguing, and it doesn't seem to um, care about the losses. It doesn't seem to be uh, willing to retreat, no matter the losses. And it's all because of their service to the Orion Draco. It's all because they serve very dark masters who are very bloodthirsty. And they want Saturn. They want to destroy Sat the prison of Saturn. They want that real beacon. And they don't care about their slaves. And this is the truth, is that the Dark Fleet are slaves of the Orion Draco. And the Orion Draco are their god emperors. But this has been Rumors of War 1987. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, please like and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, please consider donating and keeping me alive, uh, keeping me making these videos. Um, thank you very much. Iron sharpens iron. A friend sharpens a friend. God bless you. Be kind to yourself. Love your neighbor as you would yourself.
This is an open invitation. You can keep the bodies. We're here for the souls. Yeah. to 
cultivate and exploit and retrieve the resources from the gas giant and its many surrounding orbital bodies. Uh, you can think of Jupiter as a mini solar system inside our larger solar system, but there's nothing mini about it. It has moons equatable to the size of Earth. They started feverishly trying to colonize as many moons as they could because a lot of them, as they found out, were relics of an ancient species and an ancient empire. The Orion Draco gave them necessary intelligence, gave them the mapping, gave them technology, and gave them um, spiritual assistance inside Vril with the Vril powers to restart and reclaim these technologies in the name of the Orion Draco Empire, with the deal being that the, the Nutwaffen would go and scout and... Um, secure these territories because it has been several thousand of our years uh, since the Orion Draco's empire was strong enough to secure them and many things have developed since then. Many uh, territories are basically unknown, unmapped, and there's a lot of mystery to these um, territories, to these areas. The moons of Jupiter are many. There are 67 in total. There are more moons of Jupiter than any other uh, besides Saturn. And so over the decades that the Nutwaffen was doing this, they were able to secure many of these moons and discover many secrets lost onto them. Some are extremely hostile to life and barren. Some are extremely lush and thriving ecosystems. Some are entirely aquatic biomes. Some are entirely uh, ethereal, uh, frozen worlds. Some are entirely um, uh, fabricated uh some are completely artificial, uh, being moon bases, uh, basically being abandoned Astar uh, colony ships are developed and, and, and created through technologies from ancient races uh, that once dealt in our solar system or have long since gone extinct or uh, mysteriously abandoned these uh, creations. The sizes do range um, from the size of Earth to smaller. And so, given the limited amount of the Nautwafen themselves, given a limited amount of ships and personnel. It took them quite a while to fully get a grasp of it, but their presence was widely disseminated uh, very uh, quickly. So that there were some Nautwafen, uh, usually mining colonies, as few as two to five people operating in isolation to survey and to uh, scout the exploitable materials, upwards to colonies of a million men and women and children and more, usually slaves drawn from the Earth, uh, drawn from the human population at large, are bred specifically in outer space uh, to fulfill these roles, uh, given that they were not often uh, citizens at that point. Now, many of these uh, moons as the, in the surface of Jupiter itself were deemed extremely lucrative when it came to resources, specifically metals, specifically precious metals, and many became factory colonies to produce the fleet, the Nautwaffen fleet, thus cementing their territorial hold on this, this, uh, at this part of the solar system, this territory of the solar system. And the Nautwaffen quickly exploited their ability to produce off-world um, very large fleets. And that um, they were able to completely uh, map out and secure uh, many moons that beforehand had not been. But the laws of nature still apply. The laws of nature have been unchanging. No matter how far into uh, the world you really are, or off-world you really are, and it seems that everywhere they are, they go, they encounter life forms specifically evolved and individualized to their surrounding biome.
such as large arthropods, hostile super predators, some worlds being absolute death worlds, some worlds being um, overrun and extremely difficult to, to colonize because of the unique and dangerous fauna. Some worlds populated with intelligent species that are that are basically unknown or undiscovered primarily that have no technology but act as more primitives such as mankind in its most aboriginal states the laws of form and function do not readily apply on such worlds uh, transformative uh, species do exist but the one rule that is common is that these creatures are natural. These creatures have some kind of evolutionary carbon-based um, lineage and classification possible. What you see sometimes, though, are creatures that have developed on the astral aspects of life on uh, a dimensional, a higher dimensional frequency, having only vestigial bodies, having only the vestiges of organic uh, life and acting demonic, acting as demons, acting as possessing entities acting as creatures that can take over, assimilate, and repurpose an individual's, uh, an intelligent individual. And everywhere we go, everywhere the Nutwaffen goes, they seem to find more and more of these species, more and more threats that are just as capable as the others. And that these others... I mean, there seems to be no shortage... Sorry about that, those kind of distractions. There seems to be no shortage of intelligent life no shortage of intelligent life but the intelligence is usually derived from a mind a mind that pilots and controls the intelligent creature either as an individual or as a hive but created as an organic creature you know in space and time with superposition related to its body and an astral position related to its spiritual um, weight its spiritual spectrum uh, its, its inclinations and nature so, but this is something that's radically different. These replicators, these necroevolutionary um, constructs, these self-reproducing machines are like programmed to reproduce and carry out specific functions of assimilation, territorial defense, and uh, the propagation of its own kind through a cellular, or what would you be called, the equivalent of a cellular uh, Scalar uh, scale. It operates on a nanoscale. It's basically a artificially created um, cellular development, cellular metabolism. And so, the a single cell-sized replicator can create eventually a entire, uh, as you would call it, a population of these reproducing machines these replicators that would be equivalent to an entire planet's worth of biomass and eventually reincorporates the entire planet itself so that a number of these worlds and moons that were being discovered in the orbit of Jupiter as as well as Jupiter's uh, gas giant surface and atmosphere itself were completely populated and controlled by replicator swarms, by replicator nanobot swarms and that could create every single entity, every single individual life form inside an, a biome, inside a uh, 
ecosystem and also it create the world, terraform the world and moon surface itself to become a living moon in the definition of life that NASA holds, which is anything that is able to eat, uh, self-direct, reproduce, and is subject to Darwinian evolution. This complexity of design and this coordination of action is so it's such, a, it's such a mimic to natural carbon life forms and carbon evolution that it's almost indistinguishable until itself chooses to reveal in certain circumstances or is in fact investigated and, um, and, and recorded by personal uh, exploration and discovery. The first encounter of these replicators was uh, occurred in the red spot of Jupiter in the gigantic storm of Jupiter that we know as the red spot when the Nutwaffen attempted to deploy a mining facility into the atmosphere of the gas giant Jupiter so that it, they could extract a valuable industrial gases to better aid in the construction of their fleet on the colony worlds of the moons of Jupiter. Uh, so they weren't alone in, in this endeavor and they had competition in uh, the shape of Asgard, um, yeah, Ashtar um, ships, uh, Ashtar mining uh, uh, efforts, of gray mining efforts, and of uh, vestigial, uh, vestigial colonies of the Orion Draco. But they were the latest entry into the mining uh, for a Jupiter itself could be considered a world fought over and contested for the mechanical nature of itself but as they would discover it itself is a gigantic machine it itself is a independently operating manufacturing uh, yeah, a manufacturing center of these replicators and maybe the origin of, of the same uh, of the same systems of, of an ancient species that the replicators either drove into extinction uh, successfully assimilated as they were programmed to or uh, landed on invaded and then conquered that surface or that, that atmosphere the mining operation was going to be um, quite substantial it was going to be quite large and so a number of colonists a number of uh, military uh, explorers and a number of uh, research vessels and ships cartographers etc were brought down to deal with what was already going to be a hostile environment what was going to be a very testing environment but one that was technologically feasible so losses were expected to be minimal the colonies provided the manpower and the colonies of the surrounding moons provided the manpower and the material the operation was engaged into engaged on in the 70s i believe the early 70s so dark fleet had already been establishing this uh territorial control for roughly 30 years roughly 20 to 30 years um, when they dropped the mining facility that was going to be suspended inside the gases the the buoyancy of this of this red giant um the main difficulty was operating in the gravity the heightened gravity of jupiter as well as the above hurricane force winds and deadly corrosive gases of the of the gas giant most of their facilities were uh, internal most of the colonists never went out into the open world but a, another uh, 
expedition was sent to tether this gas giant with the surface, and the surface of Jupiter is very alien in the literal sense that there are crystals instead of soil, that there are lakes and rivers of metals and and toxic elements that aren't normally associated with forming the environments that we liken to being um, favorable for life. So the decision was made to tether the atmospheric mining um, facility to the surface world and to have uh, robotics uh, to go and um, to mine, to collect, to explore, and to uh, create the, the, the territorial map of the, the, of the specific location on the surface of Jupiter and to re, uh, have its support you know, be dropped off from the orbit and the orbiting fleets that were defending and uh, protecting the colony from outside threats. So there was very little emphasis put on uh, providing a military or providing a security force. Basically, they had, they were basically and they were the only intelligent uh, life forms in the, in the atmosphere of Jupiter at the time and the only ones uh, currently conducting any large-scale mining operations. So there was really you know, a very lowered sense of uh, defense preparedness and a lower sense of danger than what was necessary. The operations on the ground level began encountering, at first, microscopic uh, insect-like life forms, what they would consider life forms, uh, what they did right upon examination and upon investigation by their biologists and by their uh, scientists. They found out that these mites and these uh, ant-sized uh, creatures were actually robotic. They were actually small robots. and research staff of the Nachtwaffen uh, mining uh, colony and more expeditions were sent out and more of the biome was examined and samples collected and it was agreed upon that as whatever resources that whatever uh, life forms were encountered whatever uh, samples were retrieved no matter what analog that they specifically t uh, correlated with on earth being animal, mineral, or vegetable they were robotic in nature that they were created out of atomic building blocks atom-sized building blocks of self-replicating nano-proteins, uh, and uh, they were extremely complex. But the great mystery was, why would the robotics uh, take the place and form of every single individualized component of a bio, instead of trying to produce and manufacture a peak or an alpha, uh, you know, an apex-type uh, form? to uh, exert whatever influence and control whatever operation that these robotics uh, were undertaking. They were having trouble understanding why it would just replicate an entire biome, why it would just replicate an entire world's worth of animals, plants, and why it would also have assimilated the substrata, the minerals, and the, uh, and the elemental, uh, uh, what you call it, the elemental world around such an ecosystem, such a biome that would supply and uh, support each individual life form, as these individual life forms were witnessed preying on each other, they were witnessed evolving into each other, you know, in states of transition, they were involved in competition with each other, and they were involved in, um, in, in specific evolutions that, that others were not um, 
into two. Like one could not evolve straight directly into the other, but all were essentially the same. It was essentially a counterfeit ecosystem at a cellular level. And this plays into our understanding of how evolution really works. This really has to come to an education of how we view evolution. That a bird, a bat, a pterosaur, and a human being all have the same arm components. But a human being is not fit the same bio uh, ecosystem or any ecological niche as a bat. And a bat does not serve the same ecological niche as a seagull. And a seagull is not the same entity as a pterodactyl was. You know, in that they existed over the spectrum of time. And they existed over the course of an evolutionary... Um, evolutionary uh, timeline but they are not related to each other they're not directly descended from each other but this convergent evolution on earth is replicated in the exact same way on the in the in the surface of jupiter on these moons with these self-replicating machines and it has been seen and by the not often that these replicating machines vary by ecological niche which it itself creates and maintains as as um Specifically, as the evolution on Earth undergoes transformations due to ecological distance and due to population density and due to uh, the circumstances and needs of specific organisms, so that that the same robotic components, the same atomic uh, level components, these cellular-sized robotics, can create everything from individualized into animals to the the world around which the animals exist, as well as complex functionary. Uh, Creatures, intelligent creatures, such as what would be considered a humanoid uh, equivalent, as well as the humanoid equivalent's desired technologies, so that everything that they were encountering, and as they explored, they encountered more and more and more, including uh, civilizations, including um, technologies, which were all on a, on a cellular level, on a component level, built of the same building blocks, built of the same materials. The replicators that were choosing to replicate what we would know as plants were indistinguishable in form and function as plants found on Earth. They were only distinguishable by the makeup, the elemental makeup of, uh, of their forms. And as they were being harvested and, and exploited as a resource, this is several uh, months, uh, close to years, into uh, the discovery discovered to not fit any of the known laws of physics or nature because they were not seen to have the requirements for limitations and specifically of uh, of creating differences and the niches that they were uh, seen as of needing for example fish or fish like uh, replicators were seen swimming through the air driven by you know Levitational gases seen driven by internal engines and bio er, in ecosystems and biomes that conventional aquatic type animals were not capable of, of transporting.
transgressing or encountering because of specifics such as metabolism and specifics as respiration. Animal forms and lifelike forms were seen being created, for example, without any internal organs or any kind of skeletal structure. They were seen being uh, uh, mere mimics of forms, mere mimics of purpose and function than actual specific uh, complete simulacra of real biological organisms while some were encountered with components such as uh, internal organ analogs uh, skeletal analogs and uh, the differences between such being uh, measures of skin such as blood tissue such as uh, digestive tracts complete with the bacterium and uh, required um, musculature the difference of the kind of muscular uh, tone and uh, muscular type others though were quite experimental and quite uh, uh, atypical when it comes to living creatures in a biome some had more control more what seemed to be more consciousness more independence more active uh, abilities to manipulate and control uh, their own form their own function such that they were considered equivalent to human beings. They were considered equivalent to uh, rational, intelligent creatures. They were considered uh, creatures that were mobile and manipulative of their own environments in the same way that creatures were able to uh, manipulate and evolve inside our systems, our biological systems on Earth. Some were quite large. Some had constructive superiority over their environments. And even though their environments were made of the same, uh, the same material on the atomic level as they were, these nanomachines, they took efforts into creating uh, through their own rationality, to their own purposes, specifically cultivated and specifically engineered architecture and, um, and what could be appearance to be created their own forms, created their own identities, and idealized fashions. Now, mind you, the power to control their own appearance and the power to control their own um, specific position inside these ecosystems was variable, some having near uh, godlike mastery of it, and others being simple beasts, being simple pre predators and prey inside these artificial robotic ecosystems. The predators uh, preying on specific individualized forms the same way that predators on a carbon-based ecosystem have specialized prey items and have specialized uh, functions in, in providing for themselves and acquiring food. The material they were made out of was metallic and thus the proportions when, when developing these individualized forms of weight, of density, of, um, of material strength, ability, and purpose was seemingly negated by the environmental control that the replicating uh, cellular nanobots had on their own environment that they were able to produce um, extremely large creatures that still had the ability to fly. They could produce extremely large creatures that were uh, very dexterous and very nimble and um, had great agility that were not crushed up under their own weight so the square cube law did not apply to them. They were also able to create uh, extremely capable uh, 
creatures when it comes to speed, strength, and, um, and other um, natural type of carrying defense mechanisms such as electricity, such as uh, echolocation, uh, being able to see in uh, various light levels and exist in rather corrosive and hostile environments. The creatures themselves tended to act with their own varying levels of intelligence, ranging from creatures that were able to act in packs to creatures that were able to have herd mentalities. These herds had migratory patterns. Sometimes these uh, migratory patterns covered great distances and included, uh, of course, breeding and um, and life cycles uh, that were that were usually only relegated to biological carbon life forms. For example, some of these creatures aged. Uh, some of these creatures had. Uh, life cycles that, that, you know, fell into the, the bell curve spectrum where they were very young, maturated into adulthood, and then died due to old age and uh, disease discrepancy. There were overlord-type uh, entities. There were these creatures that could uh, serve functions such as specifically, specifically creating, manipulating, and curating environments. There were there were technologies that resembled ships, that resembled uh, vehicles, that resembled uh, manufacturing industrial sites that, and that mimicked um, uh, urbanization, that mimicked um, dispersal and, and propagation of individualized elements of the species. The species was also proven to be highly uh, transmittable. Each individual species, each individual cell, inside or a cellular reproductive element inside each individualized creature existed to propagate itself so their mating and their uh if you call it mating their reproduction functions were prioritized over any other function of their form and each could propagate millions if not trillions of these atom-sized replicating uh chains these individual uh, replicating uh, cells so that for example when the when the the humanoid um, uh, elements, the analogs of the humans that they encountered, were dismembered or were taken as samples inside the laboratory, what we would thought were components, what we thought were the limbs and the simple body organs of these creatures, were able to take lives of their own, were able to act as independent uh, forms or act as independent um, agents able to propagate, able to escape, able to uh, provide for their own locomotion, and able to uh, attempt survival, for lack of a better word, attempt survival. And they were very good at at this process, this this rapid adaption, this rapid evolutionary process. So much so that a severed limb from any one of these creatures, or for lack of a better word, creatures, was able to create of itself its own independent functionality once removed from the host body, once removed from the body at large, the major body of it, and they would, if injured or severely wounded, be able to heal themselves and recover themselves to the point that a mere functional immortality was established uh, unless completely annihilated, unless completely destroyed through great exposure to heat or great exposure to uh, electricity, which would nullify their connectivity and render them down to their basic assembly components. They would basically disintegrate them. Uh, EMPs, specifically, would would disintegrate their function. They were able to operate uh, as mimics upon encountering the not lawful personnel. That's why there were so many humanoid uh, versions to be uh, encountered and to be captured. Because 
colonists encountered them as the colonists retrieved them, as the scientific staff retrieved them, it was able to mimic and study them as well in return on a cellular level and reproduce elsewhere inside the ecosystem and the territory that it controlled analog versions of specific staff members, analog versions of specific uh, humanoid construction, and, uh, and because they followed their own timeline, their, their maturation cycle, some of these look like children, some of these were women, some of these were elderly, and they not often decided to uh, form a series of military actions against them to test their reflexes when it comes to such matters, as well as to test their own tactical viability and military supremacy against them. This was turning into something that was more of a discovery that could radically change and revolutionize their understanding of the universe than just a simple uh, collection of material and mining elements or, or lucrative and uh, profitable elements. But it was quickly found out by the not often shock troopers, by the not often drop troopers, that and land forces that that encountering them produced a massive mobilized response and a massive mobilized response from every element and every elemental individual inside replicator controlled ecosystems would become active uh, unite in combined efforts and fronts and uh, actively defend against uh, such matter such offenses such aggression um after such aggression was defeated, the Notwaffen decided to exterminate from orbit the discovered and uh, mapped out replicator-controlled territories on the surface of the world, and soon found that their orbital bombardment was only successful once the nuclear option was chosen, once hydrogen weaponry and nuclear weaponry were chosen, due to the EMP effects of each atomic blast. Now, being the Notwaffen, of course, this was a completely okay with them, and they were routinely associated with uh, dropping mass orbital bombardments. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of nukes down to the surface of Jupiter, and uh, which would cause a great chain reaction uh, on the atomic level. And what they would pacify, what they thought was the singular uh, territory, singular colony of these replicating uh, biomes and biomasses. Um, but as it turns out, they were soon discovered native to many of the moons of Jupiter. I told you that was the initial discovery of them. They were soon discovered in many of the moons of Jupiter, including uh, asteroids and meteoroids of the Kuiper Belt, as well as some of the moons of Saturn. Now, it's unclear to me how many replicator colonies, how many replicator uh, territories there are, but it's also, it's also very certain to me, though, that the colony encountered in Jupiter was not the only colony. If so, the only... Um, specific territory controlled on the surface of Jupiter. I believe that Jupiter is a very large place and that the Notwaffen, even though they are very prevalent, even though they are very numerically superior in Jupiter, still would take many, many centuries to completely eradicate the replicators found on Jupiter. Everywhere they tend to look, they find trace evidence of more and more of these biomes, more and more of these individuals, and as stated before, one individual replicator form can propagate millions and millions of others, and those millions and millions of others begin to rapidly assimilate and create their own, uh, rapidly assimilate the territory and the environment they're in to rapidly reproduce environments favorable to them. And so, life off-world, life in these mining colonies, uh, 
now it becomes a game of cat and mouse because what they've noticed is wherever they send military forces, the biomes just shift away from them. They have a globalized thought. They have a a, 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 a an intelligence that can avoid threats, that can avoid the aggressors rather than confront the aggressors after the experience of orbital bombardment. Many times, what were luscious and thriving worlds when set foot upon by the Nottwaffen become barren and inhospitable worlds as what they thought was the prevalent ecosystem and biome just quickly dissipates and retreats from them and retreats away from them either into the interior of the world or just to a far corner of it uh, outmaneuvering them and outmaneuvering their uh, their attempts at uh, securing and destroying or harvesting and exploiting them. They have been seen converting uh, territories uh, with more aggression, with more aggression, with more rapidity. Uh, they, they are seen building vessels uh, that can travel off-world that are made up of millions, if not trillions, of these uh, organisms, and those millions and trillions of organisms are themselves made up of trillions and trillions of replicating cells. They have also been seen converting the territories that they control into living uh, living planetoids, if you call this by the definition of life, replicator worlds, uh, replicator moons, that the moons themselves act as gigantic replicators, and these gigantic replicators uh, then have complete control over this world and can somehow operate and maneuver it within the orbit of Jupiter or maintain their orbital uh, their orbital path. But whenever the Dark Fleet attempts to act aggressively or attempts to colonize such controlled worlds, that they are encountered with extreme resistance, if not uh, simply outmaneuvered by uh, technologies that they, and by means that remain mysterious to them, they're able to produce super weapons and they are able to produce uh, feats of technological engineering that resemble uh, magic, that resemble uh, unexplainable power. The moons that they convert, for example, may, may uh, hold their original appearance, or they may change into something closely resembling, resembling uh, some eldritch biology, some attempt at recreating either some creature locked in their genetic memory, locked in their cellular memory, or to... Um, you know, to uh, create something which is an idealized version of the pinnacle of evolution. Um, these self-same creatures have been seen colonizing others through uh, artificial comets, artificial asteroids, artificial uh, meteors. The moons that they have created, the moons which are considered replicator moons, vary in appearance, but generally the one identifier that is, that is almost universal is the brightness and the intensity of the coloration of the luminosity of these moons, of the asteroids themselves. They are an intense shade of red. They are an intense shade of yellow. They are an intense uh, color uh, ranging from that spectrum. And they are uh, very bright and very uh, visible throughout the night sky. They are not beholden to any kind of orbit, although they can appear to follow orbits. They are not uh, beholden to any kind of distance. They don't have an ideal distance between them or the surface of worlds. 
they have been seen slamming into uh, colony worlds as though aggressively implanting themselves into the, the, the surface themselves or um, they have been seen retreating away and uh, been found not orbiting or not close enough to be defined as an orbiting body but as their own uh, rogue moon or rogue planetoid. They have created a number of functioning installations inside uh, pre-existing discovered moons and discovered uh, off-world um, orbiters of Jupiter and in the Kuiper Belt, such as meteoroids and comets. They have been speculated to be, uh, be created and to be some kind of super weapon developed by an ancient, now extinct race or the very mysterious and ancient race of the ringmakers of Saturn which the Notwoffen have openly engaged in hostilities and may be serving as some kind of type of, of weapon, some type of uh, weaponized um, cellular life form. I'll investigate further, but so far the circumstances around them remain mysterious. This has been Rumors of War 1987. Thank you for joining me. Please like and subscribe, or don't. But I'd greatly appreciate it if you did. God bless you. Iron sharpens iron, and a friend sharpens